Let's go! Uh, ready. Hey, man. I have no intention of collecting a pension from this job. <laughs> <laughs> I used to say that when I'd go to details, I'd watch the duty captain lose his mind. <laughs> I would yell out, I have no intention of collecting. You're wasting. You're wasting it right now. <laughs> We're going to start oh. the show. I'm going to be like, James, how you doing? He's going to be like, what? <laughs> no intention of collecting a pension from this. At 6.59, it's 6.58, at 6.59, I'm, I'm going to make us go live, so it may be a little early, so. All right. <clears throat> Let's have fun, gents. God bless you both. Let's have fun. This is, yeah. it's good to be in with some good, good villains. Yeah, man. There's so much. I, I remember you did a nice job when you did the homicide course, Mark, and I never forgot. And Bill, oh, I, I wrote a screenplay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you in it. Bill's got a big part in it. Bill, your part keeps getting bigger and bigger. Oh, Obviously, Bill, when we had the Bill's CIC already course, in like four scenes already. When we had the CIC course, Bill was a headliner. I mean, it was magic, absolute magic. I remember Pulaski didn't want Bill. Bill knew too much. Everybody, Pulaski hated me. I was a big threat to Pulaski. Yeah, every, anybody who uh, was a good was good at was good. He didn't want nothing to do with him. When I wanted to go from the training bureau to the to the detective bureau. I mean, it took a fucking act of Congress to do that. I can understand. Yeah, he didn't do nothing for nobody, man. What can I tell? I mean, I don't know. We're ready, Bill? It's six fifty nine. I think we'll. I'll tell you when we're live. I'm pretty sure we're. Uh... I to go All right, guys. I think I think we are live. We are live. Hey, what's Hello. up, Bill? Are we live? Yeah, we're live. Are we live? <laughs> yes, we're live. Up, I hear. Um, wait a minute. Whose phone is on right now? Getting some, getting some feedback or what? Yeah, because Bill is on his. Uh, you cut it off. What's that noise? Hey, what's up? Why is that noise coming? Yeah, we're live. Are we live? Yes, we're live. We'll go ahead. We're on. We're on live. All right, so I can talk now? Yeah, you can talk, man. Hey, what's up, everybody? And, and welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm your host. My co-host and my partner in all things law enforcement is here with me tonight. What's up, Bill Cannon? I'm doing good, man. I'm excited about having James Shanahan here. I've tried to get this fuck here about 10 times, and he gave me an excuse every time. He's flying here. He's flying there. He's in demand as a teacher. Fuck him. He's sitting down now. I'm right? very shy. Uh, I'm not the uh, truth well, is, I'm James, very shy. James, before you start, let me give you the proper intro. Okay. Um, I'm so excited tonight because our uh, guest that, like Bill mentioned, uh, tried desperately to get, but he's a very, he's a hard catch. He's like a hot chick in the, in the bar, you know, he's hot, hot, to, <laughs> hot to grab onto. But um, he's a retired second grade detective with the NYPD, 36 years on the job. He's one of the co-creators of Verbal Judo. He's an actor, a thespian, a martial artist, and he's here with us tonight. Wow. My man. Oh, Shanahan. What's up, buddy? Magnificent. Thank you How very are you, much. my friend? I am delighted to be here with both of you and who's ever turning in, tuning in. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Know, you. James, during this COVID thing, I know it's been tough to get a haircut, but I have to ask you, who does your fucking hair? <laughs> well, listen, I, you talk about flying. I'm going out to L.A. next week. 
I, I got the job as I'm going to be Larry David's body double. So I'm looking forward to that. That's some job you got there. And, and I know that you lost some weight recently because you were carrying around a baby with you for a while, right? Eh? 50 pounds, my oh, dear oh, man. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yes. I noticed it. I noticed 50, it. Great. I'm on this new diet. It's, it's the Zen diet. Twice a day, I have a bowl of steam. It's wonderful. Okay. I'm telling you, it's wonderful. I working. can tell you, Seth, you, you've been practicing these jokes for weeks. Oh, hey, where are you, James? Uh, Cary, North Carolina. Thank you very much. I oh, just, good, good. That's nice. That's where you settled down over there? Okay. How's life treating you over there? Fantastic. You know, Mark, Cary, North Carolina is like fucking the Pearl River of New York, <laughs> like Copland, USA. Uh huh. Uh huh. So uh, you were like, uh, that's great, man. That's great. You got a house and stuff? Got a house. We're happy. Kathleen and I are here. It's sensational. Hi, Kathleen. Yes. She's, she's going to see this. She's a big fan of yours, Mark. No. I'm a big fan of hers. Um, listen, there's so much to talk about, but <laughs> we have to face it. We have to talk about what's going on right now in the news. You're a perfect guy to have here because you, uh, you taught a course and you still do on... Uh, solving uh, situations, police-related situations, uh, using um, the proper, you know, vernacular okay. called verbal judo. Right. And um, Bill, go ahead. Just Well, basically, you, you teach the de-escalation of force, but we want to touch upon, we would be remiss in our duties as talk show hosts and serious police uh, talk show hosts, not to talk about the George Floyd case. Yes. Okay. And I, I really, it pains me to speak out against any police officers mm -hmm. anywhere because we're a brotherhood. Yes. But when, when it, it, it seems as though they've done something so egregious by kneeling on a guy's neck for seven minutes, I can't defend that. As much as I want to defend the profession and defend cops, I can't defend a cop putting his knee on the neck of a guy who's handcuffed for seven minutes. With the police car sitting right there. Okay. What were you waiting for? I'm, I'm with you, Bill. I'm with you 100%. I, 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 I taught 100,000 cops in my career, and it was a joy for me to do it. And whether it was verbal judo or any of the other multiple brand names it came out as, it was all about how to talk to people. And when I see something like that, like you, I think it's indefensible. Uh, I taught my entire career. Uh, when the cuffs go on, the fight's over, period, end of story. It's never personal. And when the cuffs go on, you're responsible. You're responsible for that body. Okay. And, and you're, you represent your department. I mean, we all fought. Uh, we all made collars. We're all cops. But the truth is, the work is that self-discipline and that ability to not only de-escalate, but it just, just to bring yourself to a place where the fight's over, the cuffs are on. And now it goes. Well, like you said, James, it's not personal. Yeah. And the other thing is, and if in fact the cop is guilty, is going to be arrested, probably and charged, he deserves due process just like anyone else. Without you know, a doubt. No, without a doubt. Sometimes in major incidents in this country, the press hung the officer and then the officer turned out to be on, in the right. Without yeah. a doubt. A boomerang. Absolutely. And right. I, so I don't like to speak out this early, but right. this is so egregious. Uh, you know, video of him kneeling on the guy that you had to. Uh, there's a, a great article in the Washington Post written by an, a retired FBI agent named James Gagliano. 
who's a contributor for CNN. And you could, in the article, he was pained also to speak out, but he had to say what was right in front of his face. And he had to. It's undeniable. And he's going to, you know, and let's let the, the, the justice system, uh, but my reaction or my response to it was no different than yours. And 99% of the cops, magnificent, but there is that 1%. And we have to talk about that. That's the thing. That's the thing that's the most disturbing is that we're all in agreement. Yeah. I haven't seen any police officer come out and justify this. Not one. Yeah. It's just for some reason, it, especially after Eric Garner. And yeah. we know about, you know, chokeholds now and, and getting on top of, you know, cutting off somebody's, uh, you know, yeah. breathing. Yeah, absolutely. And the guy was telling you, I can't breathe. So even if he's, if he's kicking around, it's because he's fighting for his life. Yeah. yeah. No, I, you know what? And if you're one of those cops that are standing around there, um, you know, there's four of them, four of them have been fired. Mark, let me just touch upon that fired. I made sergeant real early in my career, and the guys I supervised were all like 21 and 22 years old. Yeah, I felt like I was their dad almost. You know, and I, I didn't have a lot of time on the job. I had like five years on the job when I called to sergeant, but I felt my job was to protect them. Yes, just from the dangers of the street, but from themselves. Yes, you and know? I told that to the sergeants. I was never a sergeant, but I eventually my curriculum. This, this we'll talk about this this system. It has universal application, and it went to the it went to newly minted sergeants, lieutenants, and captains, and it was the same message: right. take care of your membership. Okay, well, and you, you, you have to win in three arenas. You have to win on the street. Yep. You have to win in court, and you have to win in the eye of public opinion. Because we derive our power from the approval of majority and. Right. Well, you know, James, you I remember you. a specific case where a cop had a guy on the ground and he had his knee in his back and they got him cuffed. And I, I told the cop, I said, get your knee out of his back now. And he looked at me like I was a bad guy. I go, dude, he can't breathe. Yeah. If his chest can't expand, he can't breathe. He may have thought I was a dick at the time, but I may have saved his job, you know? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, you spoke up. You know, those four cops that got fired... There's one guy who's in the front, and then I, I don't see the other two guys, but um, somebody should have just come over and been like, okay, you know, just fucking get off his fucking, you don't have to kneel on him anymore. Let's get him up. That guy would have saved everyone's job. And I understand what everybody was waiting for. What was everybody waiting for? Oh, well, that's, that's the culture. It was nine, uh, supposedly so you said seven, so I read nine, nine minutes. Uh, um, Anybody who knows anything about homicides and forensics knows you don't die that quickly, like in movies from chokeholds. It takes a long time. You know what I'm saying? That you know, and it's a hard, and it's a hard death too, from what I. I don't understand what what were they waiting for? A sergeant to respond and okay the arrest? I don't know what were they waiting for. But it will come out in the trial, right? And that's what we have to trust. I mean, not to sound like Father Time, but now this case immediately brings me back, okay, to my earlier years as a trainer when I broke from patrol and went into training. I mean, it was uh, 19, 19, first of all, it was 19, 
91 was Rodney King. That was a big one. And Anthony Baez in 94 and Abner Louima in 97 and Amadou Diallo in 99. Yeah, here's the thing. It's like, you know what? You're mentioning all cases in New York City, but this happened in Minneapolis. And that's the thing with the world we live in right now yeah. is that if you're a law enforcement officer, you don't have to be in that freaking state or in that city. It didn't happen to happen to your department, but you feel the ramifications of it because of the world we live in right now. Well, that's why I mentioned Rodney King. That was in LA, but it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. And I used to open up my class by telling the cops. funny because I was thinking about Rodney King in New York and I was like, wait a minute, I don't remember that. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I used to open up my class by telling the cops something I picked up from the New York Times back when I would read it. Uh, we're here to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. In other words, I had a message for the cops that needed to get some control on themselves. And I was also here to help the cops that were doing the job sp splendidly, who feel now attached to the guilt of this case. And it's a, it's a tough place to be. It's a tough place to be. You know, James, you said something before that I've heard a lot of people say, and I don't necessarily agree with it. You could say he, this guy was a bad cop. No, he was a good cop that was put in a bad situation and oh, he yeah. reacted. And I'm not saying this, this has anything to do with the George Floyd case. But if you look, about, look at Pantaleo, Pantaleo, you know, people don't understand culpable mental states. Mm -hmm. He had no intention of... Of, of course not. Well, uh, yeah, no, but we can't say that here, Bill, because I don't see what the intention of continuing to stay on his neck did anything. That's the problem here. That is one of the couple, it was reckless or it was criminally negligent. It fits yeah. one of them. Yeah, I don't see. Yeah, that's why this situation to me is different. Yes, yeah. I think, I think most New York City cops and will, you know, and, and maybe cops who understand the Pantaleo case um, will agree with us. That That's a different situation. No, but I'm just saying is that cops are put into horrendous situations and they have to re react. And sometimes people may not like the way they reacted. Yeah, but the reason why this case is pretty because they didn't, he, this, nobody was reacting. The no, guy no, I'm not talking cut. about specifically this case. I'm no, I know, but I'm just, general. you know, I, I'm talking about this case though. You know what I'm saying? It's like this case is different. And I, I, I'd like to, to break up, um, I don't like macro. When, when everybody in society puts police and all the cases in one thing. I think they're all individual cases. I think this case specifically, you know, um, is united everybody in saying this is wrong. Right. You know, well, there's, there's, I'm there's no tired of everybody fucking saying, or, or like, uh, just like, uh, you know, they throw in Colin Kaepernick and all this fucking shit and all these cases are one and the same. They're not all in the same. No, they're, they're, all, not. they're all very different. No, right. they're well, micro. They're little. They're one incident at a time. And this well, one. And here we are trying to. We're trying to help the public. All of us are trying to help the public to become conscious to the fact that, you know, we there is individuality, and we have to see case by case, and and to accept diversity. I mean, it's and and this now this broad brush of of indictment. Where is your open mindedness? And the idea is. This is a struggle. This is this is a struggle. So tell us, James. I obviously I don't know if you saw the video, the the first half of it. Apparently there was, uh, you know, they claim it was he was resisting, and it wasn't much of a resist. 
But go ahead. I know that I know that handcuffed individuals, I'm not saying perps, but people that are in police custody, and there's no comfortable, easy, artistic, uh, humane way of taking somebody into custody that doesn't want to be taken into custody. Okay. Handcuffs, we're still using the same handcuffs we were using like a hundred years ago. I mean, with all of the developments, we're still very, very, very lost in a state of handcuffing. So I understand that people bite, they spit, they kick, they resist, they roll. And it's very, very, very difficult to contain. However, that does not mean that we could lose that that bearing that we're going to talk about, that professional bearing that has to be at the core. And you're taking somebody into custody. I used to have ED, I'd be up on EDP jobs and they would say, I, I would tell the EDP, I'm going to put you in handcuffs. And, 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 and cops would say, well, why are you telling him that you're putting him in handcuffs? He's going to be going crazy. I tell you that I'm putting you in handcuffs because I'm responsible for you. And I say that to hear myself say it. And I say that for my team to hear it. Because eventually when this guy comes out, I want him to come into our collective custody command and control. And, it, and that's it. I, I tell you what I'm going to do with you. You're going to go to the hospital. I mean, I, I don't understand why so many cops generally insist on holding on to this like it's a trade secret. I agree. I agree. I always I always like to let, uh, like, I was in the warrant squad, so... Oh, you know, you're kicking down a lot of doors and you're dealing, you know, if you got to make eight a month, you know, they're not collars because there's no arrest number, mm -hmm. but they're, you know, they're police, you know, you got to go apprehension right. times a day. Yeah. So uh, you got to let them know up front what's going to happen. Say, so listen. And also, I mean, a term that we use, you know, it, it, it's basically, you know, we, we're dealing with uh, you know, third party intermediaries. That means the family, people. I'm talking about bystanders. That's another story. I mean, we live in a culture now where everybody insists on adjudicating a case on the sidewalk. Yeah. This is this is something that's kind of new. I mean, back in the day, okay. Uh, however, a third party intermediary, we're dealing with a, with an EDP, okay. And I'm not talking about criminal. We're, we're going to talk about the distinction between criminal behavior and mental illness. And they sometimes can look like they overlap, but a lot of times. The messages that we, not me, but we are giving are really directed at the EDP's 11-year-old daughter, not the EDP, because this might be the first time that this child is experiencing watching her mother go into a, uh, this, this mental state. James, so, an EDP for our audience that may not Emotionally be disturbed person. Right. I'm glad you used disturbed and didn't use that pussy term distressed where they tried to make you change it to, right? I'm the guy that changed it, you don't. <laughs> you put it when you went back to your my contribution to the New York City police. <laughs> Let me say, listen, last night when we were putting this YouTube Zoom thing together, I was an emotionally distressed. You were fucked up. Okay, if right. You, if you ever saw a 62-year-old man, 61-year-old man freaking out over technology, you would have loved, you would have put the, I was going to say, James, I'm going to cuff you. You're going to tase I'm me. Pull out the cuffs. I'm going to cuff you, but, but you're in Cary, North Carolina. Okay. okay. So if the mission of our training is to, is to take away the stigma, what's, what's, what, what is a better term for somebody okay, who's ask a question. disturbed you, or distressed? We, we, we um, where, how did you get this way? Like, 
So it's, you came on the job in, in 19, what, what year did you come on the job? 1982. That's, 1982. Okay. That's, so that's BC before crack. Where did you go? Yes. Where did you work? Uh, PSA five. That was East Harlem housing police. Okay. So you were a housing cop and, and how long were you a housing cop for? Right until the, uh, they called the hostile takeover 90, 95. Yeah. 95 from housing 82 to 95. Housing cops loved their job. They didn't want to leave housing. No, we didn't No, You know why we figured out it out. In the projects. I worked in, I worked in the two, three, you ever see a building and feel like just going in there and walking up the stairs and down? Well, sometimes, yeah, I get a little crazy. I go up in the roof. That's land. called a vertical, right? Vertical patrol. Yes. He's in the record room. That's all you ever heard on the air. No, no, I was in an apartment, apartment 11, David, doing community policing. Let me tell you something about the record room. Housing police service area five covered five precincts with four cars. Okay. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. in situation. Housing not available. I came on. I came on the job, being from a family of the job, and trust me, I said this many, many times. When I was an applicant going into the academy, I would call up relatives of mine, and they made it very clear: this is the last time you'll call me. Call me when you graduate. I'm not going to hold your hand. And when they found out, they one one of my cousins, who I'm very fond of, retired first grader, great guy. He told me. I saved my white shield for you. And I said to him, thank you, but I'm going to housing. And he said to me, housing? What did you fail the test? I mean, he was, he, he he must have apologized twice every time I saw him for 10 years after that. But he was from the generation that for some reason or another, Back in the well, if, if for, for people who are watching who don't understand the way New York City breaks up, there was a time where, um, you know, when you took the police test, you either got the city of of, of uh, NYPD. That means you worked in precincts, right. or you got housing, housing. Which, public housing, housing. You know, the housing developments, public housing, or you got transit. Well, that's why my cousin was able to see it. That's why he was an expert in verbal judo, because he said to me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. He says, you're going to housing. I say, listen, the good news is you're not going to transit. Okay, so that was his way. <laughs> but you know what the it cancellation is? prize, you know. Transit had other dangers besides the crime, and that was the steel dust that you inhaled every day of your career, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we talked briefly about this merger when the, 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 the city finally decided, why do we have three separate distinct police departments. It's, it's, it's only New York with the, the massive population. But the first true merger that I was a witness of was in 1983, we merged into the 9-11 radio system. We used to turn out a housing radio, which you might as well be talking into your memo book for what this thing would be. <laughs> Okay. It weighed and, about 20 pounds, right? Exactly. No, it was fantastic. It was like a patio brick, right? And then <laughs> and then you had the city radio. And that was your lifeline. And if you listen to the transmissions, you would notice between four and seven minutes between dispatch. That's where that's where all this where's housing came from. It was, it was oh, okay. okay. I, you listen, it's the last place you wanted to be was a record room because that's the well, first hey, place. How, long, how many years? How many years were you in housing? Well, that from eighty two to ninety five. And then what happened in ninety five? What'd you do? 
that I, I, well, where I was in housing at the time of the merger, I was on the executive board of the former housing police union, the PBA. Oh, so you, so you were a delegate. I was more than a delegate. I was a, I was on the executive board. I had, I was. Oh, I, so you, your name was on the car, the, the housing card. Yeah, think about that. You, 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 I, is there any more, anything more useless than a fucking housing PBA card? Well, I have a sack of them here. They're going to be worth <laughs> something on eBay someday, but I'm saying you. <laughs> I saw a housing PBA card. Even when I people over. Can you show me a housing PBA card? You got you got pulled over and somebody to give you a housing PBA card. You got two summonses. What oh, do you think? Here's our how's it? Here's our campaign. Yeah. Where are you? 1990. Look at me. Oh, that shoe with the bald head in the front. That's me with the yes. You were still bald back then? I was bald. Let oh, me tell you something. Shit. Everybody, I thought you had a hair on your head. Balding is hereditary. Even the women in my family are bald. Okay, I'm telling you. <laughs> I was losing my hair since high school. Yeah. So, um, so now you're in. The oh, I was, so I was on the executive board of the PBA. I had a full. Well, so what happens after that? You lose your uh, everything. Back to command, no meal. Oh, don't explain that to our studio. So you were like a powerful guy in the housing unit, and then what happened? Back to the bag. You're flopped. It's like uh, it never happened. Back to PSA six. Who's huh? watching housing after they after they you know they 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 unionized they, they everybody got together? Well, they had Timothy Nichols, who was the president of the PBA, got a position as a coordinator for then the Housing Bureau. Housing became a bureau of the New York City Police Department, okay. as did Transit. Okay. And eventually, it all straightened itself out. All but, right. So then, what what, what, what command did you go to? What, what, PSA, now, PSA five was on. So you lost all your rank, but you were still in housing. Yeah. Housing. Shit, you got fucked twice. Well, that's, you say so. Yeah, exactly. He turned to command no meal. He got no meal. <laughs> it's not easy. And, and you, know, you, you know, you don't mind when you bring that kind of, when you bring that kind of uh, attention or kind of consequence onto yourself. But we were nothing, we were doing nothing but the right thing. I mean, we completely transformed the housing police. We were so aggressive as young cops when we what came. What kind of cop were you? In, initially, okay, the first couple of years I was on the job, of course, like anyone else, my name was Hey You with the hat, okay? There was nothing special about me. I would go out, suck the car, and I would do my job. A collar was a collar, but I picked up pretty quick this whole business about dealing with people. I mean, I didn't grow up in the housing projects. I had friends that did, and I visited you grow up? Brooklyn. Okay. And I, and I lived in Manhattan, right? So I'm familiar with the five boroughs. I understood that. A public What's school... Good? James, you have that genetic gift of gab called the Blarney from your Thank you. Yes, without a doubt. And I, I, I said to myself, I, <laughs> I don't feel like rolling around on the street. I, have, I don't live here, but I work here. These people live here. And let me tell you something. I connected. I, a lot of guys made a lot of collars. I understand that. Okay. I worked with a lot of cops that made a lot of collars. You, you two are, are, are two of them. And I get that. It wasn't that important for me. Activity wasn't seen then the way it is looked at now under this Comstat. How many numbers did you bring in? We didn't yet industrialize and weaponize numbers. You were I'm out there making contracts, man. How many places did you have where you could go eat for free? Get it, baby. Who, 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 who brought money to work? 
Yeah. Oh, I was a big fan of Coquito. I had a hell of a Domino's game. Let me you know, tell you. James, one of the things that when I made Sergeant and I flew the commands like the 3 2 precinct, you know, they would always have the reputation all oh, 3 2 precinct cops are kick ass. What I found out when I went and worked in the 3 2 was how professional the cops were in the 3 2. Thank you. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it because I, I, I expected otherwise. Right, of course. Like, oh, this is the place the 3 2. I hear the cops are, are missing. They were all unbelievably professional. Oh, I agree. I agree. So, so that was, was my experience. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, 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 you didn't. Go. No, no, go ahead. What kind of a cop was I? Yeah, yeah, keep telling me. Oh, I was an honest cop, first and foremost. No, but you were, so you were saying you weren't a big collar guy. I you wasn't were... a big collar guy. No, I, I wasn't a big collar guy. And I, you know, at that point in your life, as I said, my name was Hey You. We had the job was really top heavy with old time cops, uh, completely different today. I mean, the guys that nobody complained because you were working with guys that were came on the job in the 60s. They were laid off. They were non vets. I mean, and you just I was intimidated by these guys and they knew everybody. They were community cops. They, they made it a point to know who was who and what was what. So you instantly became a voyeur when these guys were working and you got that they knew how to talk to people and you either picked up on that and ran with that or you were left behind and that was the end of it that's old school that's old school now for me you mentioned the record rooms and we all know that but whenever anybody was looking for you if you were if, if you were unauthorized or you were taking an unauthorized break or whatever and you were in a record room you got hammered three over so the way i did it is I would hide in plain sight. Okay, like I said, I'm not from the projects. I didn't grow up in the projects. I know I don't belong there. I got that, the whole ethnic racial thing, completely understood. Where would I go? I would go to the community center. I would go to the management office and get to know these people. There were a lot of little children around. What would I do? Big Officer Shanahan, I'd walk in and talk to the children about safety and how to cross the street. And they loved it. They loved it. And because my whole thing is about not being your stereotype. And I would show up and I would talk to the children about safety and strangers and candy. And at that time, I used to do this little Popeye giggle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I'd say, oh, 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 what does your season him? What does your season Brutus? Can't you see that he's just a Don Juan? You know, you're Don Juan, you've done them all. <laughs> so I would, and I would crack these little children up and they're, they're handlers, the adults in the room. So I got a reputation for being that guy. Okay, so one day I come into work and a sergeant says to me, hey, Shanahan, uh, the captain wants to see you. And I said, immediately, I'm like, huh? I'm not out of the academy that long. I think that the sky's falling. You know, it can't be good news. The I didn't even know we had a captain, okay? <laughs> so I go into this guy's office and he says, Shanahan. I said, yes, sir. Says, I sit down. And I'm like, oh my God, this is it. They found out. They, they, uh, I robbed that poor box. And he says, so I, I, I hear that you, 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 you went to the Taft Houses management and the children. And I, I, I'm, oh yes, yeah, he says, Fantastic. 
He says, where do I get 10 more guys like you? That's what I want. I want cops to build bridges. I want people to see cops and say, oh, there's my cop. And he says, Shanahan, we're coming up to the Christmas holidays. They're going to get you a Santa Claus suit. And you're going to be Santa Claus at their community center Christmas party, right? I said, yes, sir. He goes, okay. And that took off. After all, every housing project wanted Officer Shanahan to do Santa Claus. Holy shit. Find your niche, baby. Yeah, all these guys making the collars, you uh -huh. know, dozens of collars, because they had, I, who asked you to get a 3,000 square foot house in Oakdale? Okay. So, uh, you know, I had a little apartment in Greenwich Village. I didn't put it up single, it was a dollar bill. And that's what took off that whole connecting. James, you were like a one man community policing unit, right? Because yeah. That was the, in the, uh, I forget exactly what year the job tried to go totally, the whole model was community policing. Community well, policing. In 92. Disaster. But listen, James, so you, you got this talent, right? Um, for people, right? And I now guess. it's starting to uh, to get noticed. What happens next? Well, I, be I believe I believe in I believe in getting people to get to know you before they need to get to know you. And well, I believe the captain observed you, and, and and he put me into the Taft houses. And if you know the two three, they had a whole strip of housing: Johnson, Jefferson, yeah. and they had Taft and Martin Luther King. So I ended up in all of them, and pretty soon. Uh, I, I was getting calls from the West Side, the hostess, Santa Claus. I mean, it was it was my detail. And <laughs> guys were jumping all over me, but I was like, hey, do you want to do it? Oh, hell no, I can't do that shit. And uh, create Did that. They compensate Did you for the Santa Claus? Did you put that? No, no compensate. I was, you know, that's. No, but they should, you should have put been able to put in for that. You put me on the roll call, SA, special assignment. That's okay. it. Did that, didn't that interrupt your Santa gig at Woolworths? Uh, yeah, listen, I was I was a very popular Santa Claus. I never did adult shows. Let me tell you, I was always the little children. So, um, with the children. So now, now you you have this way about you, and you're a little bit different than all the other cops, perhaps. And um, tell, well, guide us. Guide, what, what what happens next? What's the next big breakthrough that? Um, well, you know, I I. I I had a beautiful place to live in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And I said to myself, now, uh, my mother was getting on in years. And I said to myself, why am I up here in Manhattan? And she's in Brooklyn. I'm working in East Harlem. They had a command in Brooklyn, housing police, PSA number one, Coney Island. Why, why spend 40 minutes commuting when you could be there in 10 minutes? So it was just a matter of arithmetic. I worked in Coney Island. And what happened in Coney Island? The same thing. I mean, it, <laughs> it's just a geographic cure. And it was the pace was a little a little slower in Coney Island, but it was still housing. You still had the blue doors and the yellow bricks. It was still, you still dealt with what you dealt with. The precinct and the transit district, everybody got along. There was never any of that animosity. That's all a big myth. We took care of each other. We looked out. It was one job long before the merge because active commands and active cops, you have that, that relationship. I mean, you're in, you're all that's coming. And so I worked in Coney Island for a while and that was fun too. And then what happened? Well, then what happened? Okay, so I got injured. Okay, you know, I mean, you know I, I'm, I'm, fights are fights, so you get injured. And at that time, what was going on with me, I was, as I said, I was-, I, I, was I, uh, I wish, 
I, uh, yeah. On duty or off duty? Uh, on duty. You're a combat. What's your, your wife look like after that place? Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> I got, I got like a lot of cops. At that, that time in my life, this job was my social life. I mean, yeah, that, that happens. I, so many cops today don't see the job that way. Oh my God, that, that was the thing. The job was your social life as well. I mean, showing up and uh, with the with the Irish sweater on at a bar. I mean, that was your life. So I got involved as a regular member of Irish Emerald. Spring Soap. Yeah, Irish Spring. Jim. Uh, yes, Daddy. Oh, my dad. <laughs> I was the I was the I was a I was a good general member and of the Holy Name Society, the Emerald Society, and that, that was my thing. And I'm. After a while, guys start getting to know you. And one night they say to me, hey, Shanahan, you're, you're, you're going to be our new chairman. And I was like, wow, I was excited. You know, they said, okay, now set up the chairs, the five rows of 10, you know. And after a while, you just moved into executive board position. So, again, I had a position on the executive board. Up again. Yeah, executive board position of the housing PBA, which is great. I was the first vice president of the Holy Name Society. I was the second vice president of the Emerald Society, and I was the third vice president of the Hair Club for Men. I mean, it was just a, I was a busy guy. James. Hey, let me, ask you, let me ask you something. You got this, obviously, with the job, you got this knack for uh, talking to people and, yes. uh, and just, you know, being a great freaking cop. When did you start acting? Because I know that you have a, a, you know, you have a theatrical background. Yes. Did you start off as an actor? Because that's the way I, I was an actor before I came on the job. Well, just to kind of tighten up the whole Emerald housing, PBA, housing police thing. When I was on the executive board of the housing PBA, the president of the PBA, Timmy Nichols, uh, we were cops together in PSA 5. And he, he needed somebody full time on the executive board. We did a little shift of personnel. That's a long story that you don't need. But I ended up with a full excusal. Mayor's executive order 75, five days a week. Best, right, aren't they? Five days a week, upstairs. You don't have to do any police work at all. Nothing. Police work, your job was to make sure guys got their GHI forms, that you were answering their calls. Now your public was the cops. You had to treat the cops like they were the public. And they came at you fast and furious. That phone was ringing all day long with guys that need a delegate, I'm going to the trial room. And I was good at that, don't get me wrong. But Timmy said, you know what your real talent's gonna be? It was around Thanksgiving. He remembered the Dave Winfield, Captain Winfield story. He says, housing now has a Santa Claus. You're gonna go to every PSA, every party, every orphanage, every hospital, every nursery school. You are gonna, we're gonna bring the press with you. I'm calling up our press people. They're gonna follow you. I'm putting you out there. I came on horseback with mounted. Aviation flew me in in helicopters. I was on motorcycles. I was in RMPs. Everywhere I went, it was phenomenal. It was just, you talk about show business. That's show business. And it was public relations. Were you already acting at that point? Or well, the acting thing, I got to say, I did a little acting as a young kid. I mean, that really didn't count. But, yeah, but you, were, you, were, you, you, did, you were in a movie? Well, we'll, 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 get, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. After the merger, I told you, return to command, no meal. I'm in PSA 6 now. 
and that was not an easy land. But you know, the, the cops did their 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 job on you. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you deal with <laughs> it's life, man? The difference. Most people don't understand. One minute you're like untouchable, and the next minute you're back. You're, you're in a pincushion. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, it's not something I took easily, and I'll get into that in a little while. Yeah. But, what, what years was it, did you go to PSA six? Uh, PSA six. I was up there in '95. So the crack stuff is. is oh, crack was all over. I mean, I I, I saw, like I said, 1982. There really wasn't a lot. 1984, 1985. You started stepping on crack vials. It was all angel dust. A lot of heroin. A lot of weed, but once crack hit, forget it. It was on, off, and running. It was wild. I mean, anybody who knows anything about that era, you were there. No matter what you, no matter what your assignment was, you were throwing down. I mean, yeah. no question about it. It was insane. And PSA six was covered most of the three two. Right? Yes, three two, three zero, oh, three four. Yeah. When the three, when the three four before the three three. I mean, it was you had Manhattan North, literally from one hundred twenty fifth. You had Wagner houses. You had. 125 North and PSA five was 58th to 116th Street River. So that was one of the most rocking places in the city at that. No point. question about it. Without a doubt, if you wanted to learn the job and if you wanted to jump in with both feet and expose yourself to this thing of ours, you and your housing, you went to PSA five, PSA six, PSA seven. That was rock and roll. And the other commands, PSA 2 in Brooklyn and Brownsville, rocking. PSA 3, Fort Greene. And you know what's the best part? Is that while all of this is rocking, James Shanahan's playing Santa Claus all over town. Well, one, one month a year. Let's not get crazy, okay? <laughs> I'm fucking with you, man. Sorry, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Shootings and homicides. This guy's walking around. He's pissed off because he's got to dry clean his Santa outfit again. <laughs> Nobody's paying for my dry cleaning. Why do I keep doing this? Yeah. That's right. I got to make a civilian complaint. Captain, could I get money to wash my Santa outfit? <laughs> exactly. I come into work one day. Now I'm I'm the guy. And the captain calls me up to his office. I was working around the clock, like everybody else on a regular scooter chart, making my collars, dealing with the guys. Phenomenal. Like at first, they, they roasted me a little. They, they, yeah, like you were saying, you got any of those PBA cards? You know, the ones with your name on them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get away from me, right? Crack it. And the captain calls me up to the office and he says, I need a community affairs officer. I need a youth officer, a truant officer, and I need a crime prevention officer. I said, okay, captain, I'll get you a couple of names. He goes, no, no, no. All of those jobs are yours. Just take it. Okay. I, I know you, 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 you like the thing. Yeah. Um, I don't need you in a radio car. Okay. I got guys that are out there. I got my commandos. They're out there. Throwing. I need you to deal with all of this politics that I can't stand. I'm not going to these meetings anymore. You are, you're gonna have to, I did that for, for a little while. It wasn't long. And I, again, I come into work one day. Like a jack of all trades, man. I come, I come, I come into work one day and the sergeant walks up to me and he says, hey Shanahan, tomorrow morning, 0700 John Jay College, borough based training. Ooh. Semi-business, semi-business, I said, and back, you know, like I said, okay, I was Mr. Let's go along to get along. I'm not the rock and bottle thrower. 
And a lieutenant walks up to me and he says, what, you, where are you going? I said, Lou, I got to go to the training tomorrow at John Jay, the borough base, I think he called it. And he says, you're not going to that shit, okay? We're going to have somebody sign you in and relax. I said, no, Lou, I want to go, okay? I've been off the street for a while. I want to see what these cops are learning. I want to learn what they're, I want to, just, you want to go? Enjoy yourself. I show up at this borough-based training at John Jay College, a classroom, big classroom. There must be, the room is really set up for like 40 people. It is like 80 cops in this room. This, is, this represents Manhattan North borough base. This is your once a year annual training. It's not the range, but it's a lecture based where you're going to be brought up to date with policy. And it, it, it's, it's, soul murdering okay i've if, if you want to know how not to teach cops this is how you do it okay yeah. we're all sitting there and i'm i'm, I'm up front because that's the only way i and, and some schlub comes in and he's behind a podium some sergeant because you're not going to get a cop to do this they'll throw him off the roof so as a sergeant comes in and starts yammering on about bloodborne pathogens and the safe handling of hypodermic needles and i'm looking around saying when is somebody going to let a round go off in here? Okay. Cause it's just, it's, it's, and then another guy comes in and he has the same two or three corny jokes, the icebreakers. And then another guy comes in with another block and I'm saying to myself, I got to get out of here. I am never going to yeah, do. Let me, let me stop you for one second. You know, what's funny on the police department jobs like that. They would give it to whoever wanted regardless of what their talent was hmm. I, yeah i want a detail i want something said I'll, I'll teach you, you know. oh absolutely and, and I'm, I'm looking at this guy behind the podium and i finally figured out why he just stands behind the podium and i said he's not wearing pants that's what it is okay this guy forgot to put his pants on today is this the police academy movie <laughs> yeah oh that's another thing they put every every half hour they put on another movie so i'm saying you know, he's, oh, you got a good movie to watch. It's, it's trout fishing in Quebec, you know? And I'm sitting there going, I, I'm losing my mind. Finally, the lieutenant comes in. Now, this is his shop. He's in charge. And everybody kind of straightens out a little because he's, you know, he's now, now you're dealing with some guy that's, you know, he could make a phone call and ruin your night. He says, uh, thanks a lot. This is the last time we're doing this training. He says, uh, going forward, we're introducing a whole new brand of training. This is coming straight from Chief Anamone. We are getting away from lecture-based training and we're going to role play scenario training. It's gonna be a tactical, uh, it's gonna be training that is conducive to the work that you actually, I'm sitting there going, this is a gift from God. And I said, he says, I'm not going to ask for volunteers because I know enough to do that. My office is upstairs. If anybody's interested, it's a week of days. It's a week of four to twelves. It's weekends off. Uh, you can't have anything really wrong in your personnel file. So, if, uh, but you can't be on chronic sick. Uh, you can't. You can't be in any way any kind of a liability to the good order in the, of the department. You can't be on a promotion list. Because we're going to invest in you. We're sending you to different schools. And I said, here we go. Here we go. Where do I sign? I run upstairs. I beat him to his office. My partner, Sonia Rivera, is watching. Sonia Rivera, phenomenal. Oh, give her my regards. John Jay College. Let me tell you something about John Jay College. 1964, my uncle was one of the first professors at John Jay. He was a police lieutenant. 
He had a, he had a bachelor's degree from Rutgers. And he, so he was on the ground floor of this entire movement to educate and bring academia to police work. 1964. He, so this whole business of community policing and connecting uh, all of these initiatives together is as old as time. And I watched him teach several times because I went to John Jay. So here I am now in John Jay College, but I don't have a background in teaching. Okay, not that you need one, but I, you know, they're not looking for Santa Claus here. Okay, they're, now you're going to be, you're going to be responsible. <laughs> housing cop that wants a <laughs> You are going to be responsible to getting a message, some coherent message, and they're not looking for the same old stuff they had. You're not going to get the job leaning against the podium all day. They're looking for something to happen here. There's a lot of pressure. Chief Anamone is sick and tired of hearing, well, that's what I learned at the academy. And that's what I learned at the academy. He says, you did not learn that at the academy, okay? So he wanted to just erase this and start over. And he wanted cops that were in the street to do the training. He didn't want guys plucked out of details. He wants guys that, that, were, that, were, in, that were in central booking a week ago doing the training. And I see what he wanted, credibility. The lieutenant, the lieutenant, he was an NYU graduate. He had a degree, he had a master's degree in journalism. And he went to Yale to get a master's degree in fine arts. And he wrote a play and he finally published the play. And it was playing at the American Theater of Actors next to Midtown North Precinct. And he gave me a part in the play. Oh, wow. oh yeah, no, this is for real. And the part that I played, he says, Shanahan, I'm giving you this, this is a big part. You are the entire, the entire play is going to evolve around your scene because you're playing a dirty cop who murders a guy on stage and the subsequent effort to cover it up. It was a police production. Half the cast were cops, half the cast were actors. And by the time we went to production, you couldn't tell who was who. I mean, everybody was in uniform. It was, it was I mean, not that I needed training and coming out of my shell. It was called Behind the Blue Wall. Oh, it was great. It was great. And we played. I thought he was going to make you play Santa. Oh, yeah. He was trying, what he was trying to get me to do. He was trying to tell me, Ixnay on the Santa suit, dude. Who was, the, who was the lieutenant who wrote this? Yes. No, who was the guy who wrote the play? His name was Pete Ruane. He okay. was the lieutenant of Borough Base. Now you're in this play now. What happened? It was phenomenal. I kill a guy on stage. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was before the um, the Abner Luima, but it had that sense to it. It was racial. How long was the run? And uh, ran for months. Okay, and there was talk about getting us equity cards, but we were off off Broadway, so that the seating, all of that complicated. They gave you housing PBA cards. So exactly. <laughs> You're in a black box theater. You guys are selling out every night. Every night. Every night. We're jammed. Seats every night. Every night. But and you're still working. Well, I go tonight. I did steady days. He, you know, he days, and then he would go do the show at night. Oh, man. Yep. Yep. That was great. We were we were rocking. Now he was connected to John Jay because that's where we did this training. So now we go to John Jay College. And in doing that, I really learned stage presence. I learned how to work with an ensemble. I mean, you know the stuff that you get out of show business that cleanly fits police work. I mean, whatever's wrong with you, you're going to fix it. I mean, opening night is not the night 
to learn your lines, okay? So you had to show up prepared, you had to be sharp, and you had to know what you were doing. And there was none of this, I'm not into it tonight. There's no E-days, okay? So I killed this guy on stage, and he was, he was, he was I remember, he was a great guy. He was, uh, he was from the uh, Yoshimitsu Yamada's uh, Aikido Dojo. So I, we, I threw him around a lot, we choreographed it. It was pretty impressive. Now we play at John Jay College in front of the entire faculty because it's a cop-based program and it's got a, a socially redeeming answer. And this is before being woke was fashionable and you're dealing with social justice and it was, it was somewhat evocative. But anyway, a professor from John Jay College walks up to me and he says, I recognize you. You made an arrest in East River Houses some years ago. I said, he says, for arson? I said, yeah. He said, I never, he was from Kirby, the psychiatric hospital. And he was the, you know, the psychologist that they hired. He says, I never forgot you. You were great in court. This is great. He's that was a hell of a production. You're, 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 you're really good. He says, I said, I, I'm a total amateur. I have no experience. He goes, stop it. We're doing this training at John Jay College now for ESU because of the Eleanor Bumpers case. We are getting ESU cops to train on how to deal with emotional illness. And if I say to you, if I said to you back then, if I said to you role play scenario training, you would cringe because of the way it used to be done. It was campy. It was farcical. It was silly. Sometimes, sometimes it could be done right, but the majority of the time, cops get self-conscious. They were doing it. Believe me when I tell you, you forgot you were in training. They had a door erected, and you had to deal. And they they threw everything they had in. And these were hardcore ESU cops. And I got hired to play like five parts. I was I was like the everyman in this company now. So I played a duty captain. They had a scenario where they have an ongoing EDP hostage barricade job. I show up as a duty captain and it was always done on the last Friday of the week. There was a two week course. So it was a Friday, three o'clock in the afternoon when everybody's really trying to get out of here. And they were a little bit souped up from lunch, you know? <laughs> I would walk in as a duty captain and I had a division radio on. I had the, the vest. The whole shit, I mean, from top to bottom, everything, captain. And they would lose their mind. They didn't know I was an actor. They're like, hey, captain. And they're stuffing dentine in their mouth. <laughs> it's good to see you, captain. How are you? And, I would, and I, would, I would totally, I would decimate the scene. I would scream at them. And it, because the scene was about you have to deal with the other EDP, who is your manager. Okay. And I called the scenario chaos. That meant captain has arrived on the scene, okay? And now who picked this up after ESU is Detective Tony Favaro was the coordinator. And he was, he was fantastic. Who picked it up? Jack Cambria. And he wanted now for hostage, the same program, identical. Wow. Yeah, hostage negotiations. You had, you had ESU. And this is, I mean, you and I both know, I took courses on this job that if I paid for them, I'd want my money back, okay? You know that, right? This was real. They had real actors. These guys had you know, equity, SAG people, the cops, the, they had props. It was, it ran right. And that opened up, that opened up a whole nother wing 
of my life. And one day I came to work and they said, we're getting kicked out of John Jay and that's politics. We're losing our gig here. We're going to be going to the armory over on the FDR drive where narcotics was. And I said, fuck, I ain't doing that. I, I just got out of PSA six. I'm not, my thing is to get, I want to work where, you know, I want to get down to Gramercy Park somewhere. I said, isn't there anything down at the police academy for me to do? They said, absolutely. They said, what do you do now when you're not doing the scenario training with, the, with this intact, in-service tactical? Well, we do the scenarios one day, and then one day it's lecture-based, kind of didactic, where we talk about the scenarios and we 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 kind of, you know, decompress and we take the scenarios apart. This is well, what what do you do? I said, I'm all about how to talk to people. I mean, I believe that 90% of this job is talking to people. So with all due respect to your tactics and your hardcover, and I like to get cops. I remember I worked with cops in my career. My homage to the cops that raised me, including my uncle, who was at John Jay College. And my father, who worked for the Brooklyn Supreme Court, and my mother, who was in the fire department as a secretary who worked for a battalion chief. So this was in my blood. I said, I worked with cops in my career who could talk a foaming at the mouth, rabid dog off of a meat truck. <laughs> That's so, so, so that you know that I'm not a completely uh, bankrupted idealist, I said, conversely, I worked with cops in my career who could show up to the scene of the blessed nativity and split somebody's head open for loitering. Oh, you got me? And they were like, you're hired. We, we, didn't, we didn't even know to offer you a job. You have to get the guy that could escalate a situation. Oh, oh, I, I worked with guys just as just as the cuffs were going on just as it and here he'd come all right fuck i'll get away we're back we're back they i said so what do you guys do down here and he says one of the sergeant down nice guy joel francis great guy he's from transit he says i teach verbal judo i go verbal judo What's that? <laughs> Verbal judo is what you just said you teach. We take our direction. A PhD named Dr. George Thompson is a professor emeritus out west. He was a uh, uh, he was a, a college professor. During his midlife crisis, he became a cop, and he created this curriculum verbal judo, how to generate voluntary compliance. And he's a martial artist. So he took a little martial arts and grafted it with academia and police techniques. And it's all verbal, nonverbal, body language. I, he says, you think you can handle that? I go, I think I, I, think I already am. And that became verbal judo. Well, wasn't ver verbal judo was first designed for cops who were high CCRB guys? Okay, well, that, see, this is why, first of all, the price tag was exorbitant you, look at the, you, had to, you had to fix the broken toys right yeah <laughs> all, all of the guys 
<laughs> all of the pirates on the job. Like they sent the dirty dust to you and they wanted them. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is why if your job at the police academy was making sure there was plenty of chlorine in the swimming pool, you were not going to get the job to teach verbal judo. That easy. <laughs> they were not responsible for your health and safety. Okay. Oh, it was rough. You talk about open mic night. Oh, Dude, I thought I could catch a rising star. It was no, it was tough. These guys. Oh, James, I I remember when when HIV first hit the city. Unbelievable. Teaching us in training, and the cops were so they were like, "Fuck you! I ain't doing this! I ain't doing." I mean, I was like, "Holy shit!" You know. I was. I learned more. I learned more about myself and and the job and all than anything else taught me. You're talking. These are cops. They're not recruits. There's no two a squat move in this class. <laughs> Ground your gear. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, that's what they no. said when they wanted to do a no. squat move. Right? <laughs> they got guys coming into this <laughs> class. When you're a recruit, they yell at you. They, we had guys coming into this class, haven't seen, a, haven't touched a firearm in three years. Okay. I mean, we had guys coming in with feather dusters in their holsters. I mean, these were dangerous cops. Okay. And it was my job to present this curriculum that, and I said, I'll be damned if they're gonna beat me. And after I got flopped off the PBA board, I can't do Santa Claus anymore. I uh, just wrapped up an off-Broadway show. So, you know, there's no going home. And what I learned how to what? How to, how to sell doing it right to people who are already doing it right, who just don't know that they're doing right. Well, and I'd ask, I'd ask these guys, how many civilian complaints do you got? And I thought they would say, oh, I got 60, I got 59. One guy had, I have four civilian complaints. I go, I'm gonna get you a medal. I mean, where do you work? I work, I work in a 2-8 and you have four complaints in a year? That's, you're doing it right. I, you can teach me. So verbal judo then became a curriculum and Again, I had an enormous amount of freedom with where I wanted to go with it, as long as I stayed reasonably on script. But James, you know why they, you know why they made it that? Because precinct commanding officers <laughs> were being promoted or not promoted based on how many civilian complaints. Yeah. Oh no, no, without without a doubt, without a doubt. And typically, Bill, you know, it it, it and no matter how righteous it was or no matter how conscientious it was or even legitimate or creative most training on this job comes down to check the box training you know that. it was just did you go to verbal judo yes next i mean nobody was really taking an interest in addressing your real concerns and you had cops that needed help I mean, I was dealing with cops on the breaks. I was these guys. I was like, oh, man, uh, <laughs> got some issues. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, well, when you say that, are you saying that like you would teach your class, and then afterwards you'd have people coming up to you and talking to you, like yes. your therapist? Well, I wasn't a therapist, but, oh, they, no, but they were talking to you like they were th you like you were a therapist. Well, they were talking to me like I was a senior cop that uh, I prove to them that I was on their side. I'd like to think that I used the class to teach the class. So I was rapport building. I was empathetic. I was paraphrasing. I was not condemning them. I wasn't judging them. I wasn't breaking their balls. I wasn't making fun of them. Although there was plenty of room for all of that. And that's where we lost a lot of guys in training. And the cops, I mean, you guys, a lot of cops think you know, I'm a trainer. That means I'm a stand-up comic. Well, humor has a big place in training. 
but it can't be all training. Can't be all. You know, you have to you have to get those serious messages in there, you and know, then James, use humor I, as the vehicle. James, I taught college, and sometimes my students would say to me, "Ken, you play too much." <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, if you're not having fun, that's right. I had that fun, right? right? So. Like anything else on the job, verbal judo was originally a two-day course. Then they whittled it down to one day. Then they eventually whittled it down to three hours because that's, again, it's life. Yeah. And verbal judo then became, they wanted a verbal judo version for newly promoted sergeants and lieutenants and uh, citizens police academy and the school safety officers because they realized what Dr. George Thompson, who's since passed away, what his genius was, he bottled the genie because this stuff never had a name. It was common sense or social science. He didn't construct a, a codify a curriculum around how to deal with verbal abuse and, and just people skills. Although 98% of your job is people skills. And because he had a martial arts background, I was kind of drawn to him because as we all know, uh, words will fail and you're gonna have to, we're all, you gotta put hands on people. And even when you do that, you're gonna do it right which brings us back to our original point about handcuffing people. So you were professional through the entire episode so that even the public that was watching you, even your most vile critic could look at you and say, that cop did it right. You know, I hate all of you cops, but I like, I remember Sergeant Cannon showed up. He knew how to, and that was the goal to get that professional cop and really put away the cynicism and the, the, the sarcasm, which we know we're made of, because that's that's the cop humor. We know that, right? Mm -hmm. But the work was to really get the, your your ability to to get the job done. But James, uh, the old time cops, a lot of them, they had that already. They had that ability to talk to people. I remember that I learned when you stop someone, stop question and frisk. If he's not the guy. Leave him with a good taste in his mouth. Say, sorry, buddy, you fit the description. Don't Absolutely. say, hey, dude, fuck you. Get the fuck out, you know. Yeah. Why, you know, that's going to pay dividends for the future. I give a lot of credit during that era, because I did that now. Now I'm doing this now. This became like almost a landing for me, okay? We got away, we got away from using the word verbal judo, because it's copyrighted, and there's royalties involved. I don't have to tell you. It's all politics. So I was challenged by deputy commissioners and, and others to say, Shanahan, you've been teaching this how long? I told them. And they, they asked, one, one commissioner asked me a very interesting question. What did you learn by teaching this class? And I started to tell him, he says, no, no, I don't, I don't want to know. That's what you're going to teach. So you're going to strip this of all of its copyrighted gizmo gadgetry, and you're going to really bring it back to what this was before it was called verbal judo, how to talk to people. And that, I, I appreciated that, that I had that opportunity to really become a mid scientist. If I could say, um, from somebody who was in your presence when you were in your prime, it was an amazing thing to see. I had the good fortune of, uh, when you think about things like play it forward, mm. um, I, had a, I had a comedian that interviewed me uh, he was part of a magazine called New York Natives. And in the course of interviewing me, um, I guess they did some research on me, the people in the magazine, and they found out that I had a blog 
and that I, I was writing on it. So uh, they liked my writing and they said, um, you know, would you mind, would you want to be part of our magazine and, and submit an article every month? Yeah. Wow. So I started writing an article. Then I started writing another article. Then I talked them into doing a web series. And when I was doing the web series, I remembered Bill. And from remembering Bill and bringing him on the thing, I thought I had another idea for another web series. Then we did another, all on these people's dime. And now it's me and Bill doing off the cuff. Cool. And um, you fast forward, uh, they lost their funding after a little while. And uh, so now we're, me and Bill are separated, but you had called up Bill. And because you knew Bill was starting with the acting and you asked him if he wanted to be part of what you were producing at the police academy with your training. Yeah. And Bill couldn't do it, but he said, how about me? And you called me up and you asked me to do it. Wow. And then I had the opportunity to go in there and see what you were doing. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it was, you know, I, I'm a theatrically trained actor. I, I went to school for acting, uh, you know, four years. And, uh, you know, I, I've been in a theater company, but mm -hmm. watching you do what you did and there's still, you know, I still, I'm still at the Academy because of you. Now we're on down because of the COVID, but, you know, I've been working there for almost five years now because of you, because you pulled me in. And it's one of the most, um, you know, I keep my acting. I have gotten a lot of acting parts on TV mm -hmm. because I'm always sharp, because I'm always performing, yeah. not just stand up, but because I'm performing in the Academy acting. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to tell you, I've never seen anybody, you know, come into a room and I try to explain it, you know, to the people now. You know, before you start a scene, you have to say to the people, all right, are you guys ready? Are my actors ready? Are everybody, all right, action. And it's such a simple thing, but the way you used to do, you know, it's, it, nobody could do it. <laughs> and we had such real scenes there, you know? I mean, listen, it, it's still good, but when you were there, man, it was unbelievable. I appreciate hearing that, I do. I really no, you used to say ready on the left, ready on the right, ready on the firing line. Without <laughs> that, that voice. Yeah, I I, I too, it, comes down to, it comes down to the fact that I actually cared about the cops. What can I tell you? And the, I, I used to say that this was the training that they deserved. And I was only I appreciate what you said, but I'm only able to do that because of what was shown me. I have my mentors and people in my life that showed me how to do that. I mean, my teacher, karate teacher, Kaicho Tadashi Nakamura. We'll talk about that a little bit more right now because that's part of your, um, Yeah. you're also, you're ground, you know, because you're so grounded. So you um, you did this theater play. Yes, Behind the Blue Wall by Pete. Behind the Blue Wall. And now, it, does that get your, do you ever take an acting class? Okay. I just met Kathleen who was now my wife uh -huh. during that period. Okay, I was, I was single at the time. Yeah, you're this hotshot, off-off-Broadway actor right now. Yes, I had, a, I had a little goatee and I wore black. Yes, I look like Bob Fosse. Anyway, uh, I met her and we, we hit it off. And uh, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was good. And she 
she has a theater background and she said, oh no, I, 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 I don't have it for another actor or musician. I mean, we, 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 we were not kids, okay? And uh, we connected, it was, it was working good. And she told me, she was living in Manhattan and she told me that she had a very, very good friend named Brenda Hampton. And Brenda Hampton had a show on television called Seventh Heaven. And she worked directly for Aaron Spelling. So she was a producer. She was legit. She was made. She and Kathleen lived together back in the day when they were both broke. Okay. And now that Brenda is out in Hollywood with this massive, massively successful, it went off like 13 seasons. It was unheard of. We get married. Kathleen and I get married. And very small ceremony again. We invite Brenda to come to New York. And by now, Brenda adopted four children, three from Africa, one from Vietnam. And she comes out to Manhattan to meet us. And we went to Smith and Walensky's. And we had a grand old time. And she said to me, James Shanahan, you sit next to me. Who are you? And I went into my bit. You know, I talked about the detective and uh, verbal judo and martial arts and shit. Fantastic. I said, listen, her children came from Africa and they were subjected to a lot of cruelty and trauma and the girl from Vietnam. I said, you know what I'd like to do, Brenda? I'd like to invite you. Santa for me. Can I do Santa for them? I miss doing Santa. I said, can you come down to the police academy tomorrow before you ship out to Los Angeles? I'd like to take you for a cook's tour of the police academy. She said, really? I'd love that. So at the appropriate hour this escalade pulls up and these kids pile out and there's Brenda and her husband and everybody and I take them all through the academy we went down to the gym watched the recruits running around and Lieutenant George Duquette he was very nice to everybody we went down to the range and we showed everybody everything and we went next door to ESU and they all they had they had everything I mean I'll tell you about this job. You say whatever you want about this job. This job knows hospitality. I mean, there's no job in the world that has what we have. We have everything. We have one of everything. She was really impressed. I broke away for a hot second. I ran across the street to that little police academy store. And I brought the kids back like uh, t-shirts and pencil cases and hats, uh, you know, usual, you know, trash. And she was just knocked out. On the way, then we said goodbye. On the way back up to the hotel, she turns to Kathleen and says, what do I do for this guy? Right now, Kathleen, what do I do for him? And Kathleen, put him in your show. Oh, wow. Put him in your show. And she said, okay, then. A week later, Brenda calls me up. She says, I need a little bit more on verbal judo. Run it by me again. Give me, the, give me, a, give me a little, and I tell her, I didn't know she was setting me up. She wrote a part for me, not just watch your head getting in the car, sir. I mean, you know, for your sad car. Yeah, yeah. She wrote me a part. And she wrote a part for Kathleen. We go out to LA, first class for a week. Wild. We record this. I play a cop. I play me. It was 9-11 theme about an airport, a family, and how they're going to get back home and all this distress. And I was there taking care of people and, and engaging them and rapport building. I got my sad card and a nice paycheck. And 
Brenda Hampton. I mean, she put me on the map. Yeah, but you, that's nothing, man. What you did, right? It, just being you was fucking brilliant. Because if you know anything about like people, and and not not I don't want to use the word schmoozing them, but just with, with in your situation, what you could afford them, which was seeing the police academy and then running. It was just brilliant, running across the street to get the kids' gifts. It was brilliant. You're a fucking brilliant man. It's I, not I, an accident I, all this shit happened to you. I can't, I, I can't take much more of this, but I... I <laughs> hey, tell them to stop powdering your balls. The no, idea, no, the no. idea is... I, knew that these I would kids, have fucking blown that opportunity. I knew these kids were traumatized. And I said, I have a shot at showing them something that they haven't seen before. Let okay, it so now you do this part. Um, what was the show called? Uh, uh, Seventh Heaven. So you did it on So then I come back to New York and I'm I'm now we, we don't call it verbal jurors, now it's tactical communications. I got again, I stripped of it of all of its I I, I cleaned you, it. I, I ask you a question. So you're still doing verticals right now? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Just as Santa. Uh James, your boss, Jack Cambry, is watching now. So be thank you very much, Jack. <laughs> so, I got a Jack Cambria story. So go ahead. Uh I get a phone call. Uh, I, I'll, I'll do the Jack. Yeah, I'll do the Jack Cambria story right now, because it cap. It happened after this. Uh, now I have 24 years on. You got to remember, 9/11 happened. We we completely glossed over 9/11. Uh, the morning of 9/11, I was home. Uh, I got a phone call from Kathleen. She had her apartment in Manhattan. I was living in Rockland County, and she says, "Turn on the TV. A plane hit the World Trade Center." And unless it was a Cessna, like you know, the late. Thurman Munson case. I turn it on. It was a jet. I said, this is no accident. I grabbed my bag, load it up. And I said, I put a recording on my, on my answering machine saying, I'm all right. And I, the rest is history. You packed the Santa suit and you headed down to 9-11. We, we were suited up and I, it was all a blur. It was all a blur. And yeah, that, that was, that, that, that was a tough time. And, uh, Jack Cambria, the commanding officer of the hostage negotiations team, had one of his negotiators, uh, Navy Ensign Kevin Hanley, stationed in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba on his military service. And there was an insurrection at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where they took hostages, military hostages. It was well orchestrated, choreographed, and executed. This thing could have went wrong. Kevin Hanley employed his negotiation skills and fixed everything. I'm really telling the story fast, but he cured the scene. The admiral called him into his office and said, first of all, who are you? What did you do? And where did you learn how to do that? And he said, I'm a detective in the New York City Police Department. Uh, I'm a hostage negotiator, and this is what we train to do. He says, how do I get my people to know? I'm fascinated, and I'm grateful that you know how to do this. But I have to multiply. I want many, many people. There's a guy named Jack Cambry in the police, academy, uh, police department. I, don't, I, I make suggestions. He makes decisions. And he's probably going to tell you, uh, Admiral, to call Commissioner Raymond Kelly. He says, Ray Kelly? 
ah, we were in Vietnam together. Picks Picks up the big phone. I need your hostage negotiation training unit, which there is no such thing as. Jack did all the training. And we had a dear friend of ours who, in my opinion, was the anchor of the team. Her name was Lydia Martinez. She was brilliant in terms of people, skills, teaching, the most egoless individual, the purest message of of taking care of people. We brought her, uh, Kevin was already on the ground. We brought in Eddie Sloan from Intel, another brilliant, and Jack and myself. We went down to Gitmo for a week and we rolled out this interactive experiential training for military people who initially might not have been on board, but by the end of the first day, they they followed us out of there and we ran our scenarios and it was extraordinary. I mean, it was, again, we got the secret sauce and we brought this to Gitmo, to the Navy and Marine personnel for this, uh, this uh, condition down there. And it worked. I got a, pro- I got a promotion out of it, obviously. Stop you for one second, James. Yes. The motto of hostage negotiation is talk to me, right? That's our motto, talk to me, yes. So obviously, if someone's talking to you, as a hostage negotiator, you have to be a good listener. Yes, you do. And then you have to know what to say after that. Could you yes, you do. on that a little bit? Right, 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 right. It's really, it's let me listen to you is a more appropriate motto. It's not, again, and by now, Jack and I, he brought me into the team and we, we did a lot of work together. And I really got close with Jack and I were classmates together in 82. But by now, sadly, Lydia passed away, which was very, very sad and tragic. So in her honor, a lot of times we did a lot of training with uh, Annapolis and West Point. And again, it's a simple message for complicated times. And it's common sense. It's about empathy. It's about de-escalating your, your ego. And it's about being ethical. Okay, and it, it, it's done all the time by many, many people. But in, the, in a hostage negotiation, because detectives have this specialization about getting information, they, they're able to bring information out and your ESU is there to provide the tactical engagement. So it's really, uh, it's a full court press. And um, that was one more thing that I, I managed to do. And one day I get a phone call from a, from a, a casting director telling me that there's a movie that they're putting together and I'm, I'm being offered a part. Now I think this is the guy's calling me to break my balls. Okay. Uh, and I, I, I almost hung up on her and she said, uh, you know, this is where we want you to come. Um, you've been referred to us. So get down here tomorrow. What happened again, Kathleen had a hand in this, a friend of hers who used to be a writer for David Letterman is out in Los Angeles. And she's in a class with this casting agent. Now, if you know, we all know about casting agents. Uh, you don't walk up to a casting agent saying, here, I have a script I'd like you to read or my, my doorman wants to meet you. No, it, it's not happening. She says, uh, I'm going out to New York. I'm filming a Robert De Niro and Al Pacino movie called Righteous Kill. And the good thing about it is they're gonna be used, it's gonna be a cop movie. And it's going to be really good. They're really trying to capture what they had in that movie Heath. So it's going to be exciting. It's going to involve a lot of uh, cops. And this woman 
errored and forgot to tell the casting agent about me. And she really kicked herself for that. But the next week she was still in the class and she said to her, I thought you were going to New York to cast. She goes, I am, I'm leaving tonight. She goes, before you go, I know you don't want to hear this, but I have a friend that has a husband who is an actor and a detective and a hostage negotiator who just came back from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I met him. You have to meet this guy. Please meet him. I'm not asking you to do anything more, but she's, oh, I'll meet him. I'll meet him. And that became Righteous Kill with De Niro and Pacino. And I played an ESU sergeant and I got a couple of lines and it was up in Connecticut and it was hilarious. Absolutely fantastic. You also did Blue Bloods. Didn't you audition for Blue Bloods? Oh, I ever tell you that story about Blue? Oh, Blue Bloods. Yeah. Oh my God. I get out now, now by now, I was with Louis C.K. I was with Jerry Seinfeld. I was in a movie called The Cobbler with Adam Sandler. So I'm starting to move along, right? And my agent calls me and she's really, really hardcore, you know, old school. She calls me up, how you doing doll? Listen to me, sweetheart. Uh, you gotta listen to me when I'm talking to you. I got the Blue Bloods people. You got that? And they want to look at you and put on a good suit. You understand me? And show up tomorrow. I'm going to send you the sides and you're going to do this. You understand me? Because they're ready for you. They, they, they want this to happen. I, absolutely. So I put on my best suit, half Windsor, you know, pressed, clean. I show up at the audition. <laughs> Give me the script. And I hit it. I hit the mark. And you know when you hit the mark. And they said, great, do it again. I said, absolutely. And bang, I go in again. Excellent. Let's try the angle from this side. Uh, can we call in Lenny and Al? They might want to see this. Okay. A whole room full of people. I'm doing this bit. We're doing this. We're, we're running lines. In walks these two guys. Do it again, James. Okay. Bang. Hit it. Very good. Now, just a little slower. Don't change anything. Just a little, a beat. Now, you know, this is, by now, I'd be thrown out the door if it wasn't working. Thank you very much. I called my agent after the audition. I said, I think it went well. She goes, well, who was there? I said, I don't know, some guy named Lenny and Al. She goes, all right, I'll take care of Lenny. You leave him to me. I know how to talk to Lenny. And I'm happy now. Okay, it's beautiful sunny afternoon in May. I'm on 13th Street and University Place. I'm gonna walk down Broadway, visit a friend. I turn the corner on Broadway and 13th Street, and here's this old black man on a wheelie walker screaming at a cab driver. <laughs> and all I see on both sides of the sidewalk are people with their cell phones out filming this catastrophe. The traffic is backed up to White Plains and it's just insane. And people are standing there like they're so woke, you know, social activism filming. <laughs> and in that instant, I said to myself, I'm waiting for somebody to fix this. And then the next thought was, I guess it's going to be you with all of your tactical communications and all of your, now show me. So I walk up to this man 
I should have known better, but I walked up behind him, which I should not have done. And I tap him on the shoulder. He turns around. He's like, what the fuck are you looking at, you bullheaded motherfucker? <laughs> He's chewing on me now, right? <laughs> so I said to him, sir, I'm here to help you. Yeah, fuck you. I'm waiting for the cops. I said, sir, I'm a police officer. I'm here to help you. Step number 12, the crazier they get, the better you become. Bring it down. I'm here to help you. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Sir, I see what's happening. This man's refusing to take you. I'm, I'm going to get you another cab. I need you to step up on the sidewalk for your safety. I can't let anything happen to you. I'm doing all of this. <laughs> he has a World War II veteran hat on. I said, where did you serve? He was in the Army, Anzio Beach. I was like, oh my God, I worship you. I said, where are we going, sir? Where, where are you going right now with this cab that I'm going to get for you? He says, West 74th Street, West End Avenue. I said, close. Okay, are you ready? Just catch yourself, compose yourself. I'm going to take care of this. Now, I'm dressed in a suit and tie. Dressed to the nines. Okay? Big white guy, 13th Street, Broadway. I'm a, I'm a six-foot, 220-pound ATM machine. Okay, I'm the guy that gets the bill. I'm the guy. It's all me. This is like, and I step out onto the sidewalk, onto the street, and I say, taxi! And 12 cabs slam on the brakes. Because everybody wants to take this guy anywhere he wants to go. And I go up to the cab driver, and I said, uh, 74th West End Avenue. Yes, sir. I said, okay, get out of the cab, open the trunk and take care of that wheelie walker right now. And he started to pause and I just might've had just enough of a bite in my voice. He got out of the car. He came around, popped the trunk, folded up the wheelie walker, put it in. This gentleman, I said, you ready? Come on. And I helped him into the cab and I closed the door. And the cab driver says, you're not going? I said, no, I'm not going anywhere. This is for him. And the last thing I remember was the little old man waving to me as he drove away. And that made me feel good. What happened with the part? What happened with the, uh, with, with, did you get the part? Oh, the audition? Uh, they gave it to Tom Selleck, okay? I mean, because yeah, he has a mustache. Oh, those, <laughs> those motherfuckers. That was a long setup for a fucking two-word punchline. You know? you. It was worth every minute of it. You know, this is what I like about this stuff is even if the cops didn't see it for themselves, the truth is this stuff goes home with you. Hey, hey, listen, be, listen, before we get serious, uh, we're, at eight, uh, we're at an hour and a half. So I just want to get a couple things out of the way. Okay, go ahead. So you, you did the acting thing, but yeah. you also were a stand-up too. Well, yeah. Well, back in the day, yeah, early on, I used to, I certainly used to hang out at Dangerfield. Okay, but and but I I was very casual about it. You're a cop right now. Yeah. The reason why this is important to me because I'm I'm you know like I did it too. So I'm interested in knowing like so you were a cop right now. You're working somewhere, and where do you go to do your first comedy? Uh, Pips out in Sheepshead Bay. Okay. And what did you go to the open mic night? Open mic night. Oh, everything was. I was never. I was never on a bill. It was always open mic night at Catch a Rising Star. Uh, I never worked at Dangerfields. I, I. But I picked up a lot of techniques there. But the stand up comedy again was, uh, and I did a lot of cop humor. 
Uh, apparently, you have you have a you have a, a great uh, storytelling ability, man. I could listen to you all day. Mm. I mean, well, you would have been, well, been a phenomenal stand-up. Well, I mean, three drink minimum. These people are soaked, but I knew how to handle hucklers. You know. Yeah, I. I, I was. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I was. No, I, I liked having fun. I really did. I liked opening up the room. I like listening to people laugh. I love when cops laugh. Uh, yeah, stand up was was again. It was good basic training. I'm tell you something right now. I, I I I'm doing me cop jokes whatever. But yeah, somebody who I could honestly say if they wanted to do it could it do it better would be you. Obviously, <laughs> you, you no. You just have you just you know. You're exactly what people want to see. Well, I liked, I, I, well, my, yeah, okay. Well, when we were doing the EDP workshop, I'm not going to digress too much, but we used college professors to do the clinical portion of talking about mental illness. So that relieved me of having to do classical teaching. All of my stuff is anecdotal. I, I, I am a storyteller, okay? And I, I would work whatever your training objective was into the story that I was telling you. And then of course, with the actors being one, knowing one, and as you know, we brought Kathleen on board, okay? Because she has a background. Kathleen is a licensed psychotherapist. So, and she has an obvious background in show business. So she was perfect for what we needed her for. And it really, like I said, it worked. And you know when it works, when people just get together. Show business people can be sometimes difficult to work with, like cops, but it, it when it works and it comes together, there's nothing. You know, the reason why I mention it is because you, um, you, you took all these tools that you had, you could have been a great stand-up comedian. You could have been a fucking famous actor right now, <laughs> but you took all those things, but you made the police department better. Thank you. I appreciate hearing that. You know, you, you brought it, you brought all those skills into the police department and you made, you made better cops because of that. And that's an amazing freaking thing because you have all the talents to succeed in any one of those other businesses. Mm. And you did it. You showed that you could do it, but you said, you know what? I just want to, I just want to make sure my boys are okay. Thank you. So, you could have been somebody. You could have been a contender. <laughs> Instead of a bum, which is what, of a bum exactly. is what you are. Um, I could have taken, taken Wilson Pod. Kid, this ain't your night. No, you listen, let's, let's talk I'm, about what I'm you're doing. Polos in the polo grounds. Hey, uh, James, let's talk about what you're doing now. Now you're retired, and no. you did 36 years on the job. Yes, I did. So, and I know it was really hard for you to retire. But um, you didn't. You, you picked up, and now you have a course that you teach all over. And in, in professional sports, you do it too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was out in I was out in uh, Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee Bucks. I did some work for them. What is What is it that you teach those guys? Not you to like. I, I really what I try to get to is the the ushers, the people that are that are working the work in the room. The usher, they're not cops, but they have to deal with people. So I would, oh, okay. yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Escalation and, and because they're not cops, but yet they have to deal with people and that could get complicated. No, and that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And if they've, you know, they've been dumping a few back, you know, you got yourself. Uh, 
Those are interesting situations. You see the videos on uh, YouTube, the fights in the stands, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, um, it, the, the, you know, yeah. they're not cops, but there's security. A lot of them are might be off-duty or retired cops. But, yeah, but a lot of them were. And I did the Mets. Uh, we have some friends from the job that are now moved into nice positions and uh, uh, Rockefeller University and a lot but of the do something when you do the meds, do you refer the people to like a psychological <laughs> to therapy because they're okay. Mets fans? The reason why the reason why I get these jobs is I'm not a fan. OK, I'm not when I meet these players, I know they're professional ball players and they're very talented, but I'm not standing there drooling no, no, i'm a met fan so i, I if right. <laughs> i would imagine that there's a lot of talking people off uh or a lot of people suicide people at met games yeah at james now it'll be even tougher because they're going to give free met tickets to the graduates That's right, for the, for the inmates. island graduates absolutely so have to work cut out for you there you got it man you got it so uh, so yeah you know tell us about the course that you're doing now i call the course I, I got away from calling it conflict resolution because I put some time into this. I don't call it conflict resolution. I call it conflict management and I call it technique and spirit because that's part of the, part of the title of my teacher's book is martial arts. He calls it karate technique and spirit. So I asked his permission to kind of, because there's some technique involved, but also there's this spiritual side of it. That's really ethereal that you really can't, you can't name it. It's formless. But we all know what it is. And that's when you're doing the right thing the right way. And down here, there's a lot of college campuses. Uh, I like talking to campus police and campus security. They have a tough job. They have to deal with uh, what's happening. Um, I did some retail work for shoplifting, etc. But I like talking to I like talking to first responders. However, I'm realizing that this has a universal application for anybody that deals with people. And dealing with the public, as you know, is a challenge. And now with this pandemic, eventually we're gonna come out of this catastrophe and we're gonna to have to come back to what the closest thing that we know to normal. And I, I'm, I'm a believer that there's gonna be an uptick in, in business. And part of that business is how to deal with people. Customer service, hospitality, uh, dealing with people. Everybody's on edge. Everybody takes everything personally. Everybody's ego is through the roof. Everybody communicates in vulgarity and there's, there's a, a temptation to lose your mind. So I'm hoping that I can somehow harvest this. There was a guy who opened up his business. I think it was an ice cream shop somewhere. It might've been up north and um, his workers got so abused because the people had to wait in line and there was like a six feet separation and how long it took for them to get their oh, ice cream. I could, and I, some of the girls quit after that first day. And then they, uh, the owner wound up closing. He said, you know, uh, forget it. You know, it's not worth it right now. They, they wound up getting a lot of money, like in a, like a GoFundMe or something like that. Yeah. But, that's exactly what you're talking about is, is, you know, getting back to the slow pace of getting back to what normal used to be, you know what I'm saying? And it? waiting in lines and, and having to deal with it, it just like, and depending on which side you fall on, you could be like, this is all fucking bullshit. 
I just want to get my freaking thing. And somebody yeah. else is like, get away from me. You don't have a mask on. Oh, instantly. Right. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, we're going to be moving into a new reality. Uh, and I'm hoping that Kathleen and I are prepared. Uh, I have a website, uh, Keisatsu Dojo. Wait, 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 wait. Because this is the thing. This is the big problem I have with you. <laughs> You're trying to create business. And you have this freaking website with this crazy name. Well, let's get, let's go over it again. Okay, very, very simple. You were a detective. Pay attention, okay? It's Kesatsu Dojo. Common spelling, Kesatsu. Okay. <laughs> it's K K I T S U. Start from the beginning. K E I S A T S U. Dojo, D-O-J-O dot com. Keisatsu Dojo. It means police academy in Japanese. All right, that's great. Are you, are you on LinkedIn too? I'm on LinkedIn. Where, where, where are the places we could find this uh, to hire you? I think AOL picked me up. I got the dot com. The interesting thing, I turned to my teacher because I use a lot of martial arts, not necessarily martial arts could we just go to the martial arts thing when did you get started martial arts i was a kid 15 years old okay so what type of martial arts were you doing at 15 always, i was always drawn to traditional japanese karate okay so you've been practicing martial arts for 50 years well no on and off i i'm not consistently but my father brought me to a dojo many 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 years ago and i met a teacher and he was a really tough looking guy, he had a black crew cut, and he had crazy tattoos on his arms and his knuckles looked like golf balls. His name was Peter Urban. And uh, he made an impression on me. And I, I lived in Bay Ridge and I went to a, a school in Bay Ridge called Bay Ridge Dojo. And they had a karate program there and they had a jujitsu program. Uh, what I was doing prior to leaving New York as I was with uh, an organization and I'm, I still am, uh, Sato Karate on West, uh, there they were on West 23rd Street. Uh, the, the teacher there is somebody that I knew of since the 60s. And if you, uh, my thing was that real traditional hardwood floor, white gi, straight up karate. And I got a lot from that, more than just kicking and punching. It was more of a, it was more of a, a life affirming philosophy. And I, I made sure that that made its way into my curriculum. And you, um, you know, from following the martial arts, it changed you, like your life, the way you were. I mean, you were a cop and, uh, you know, you were a lot of stress out with other cops and, yeah. and probably involved. In, you were drinking. I was drinking. I was unhappy. I was creating dangerous and destructive circumstances for myself. And the martial arts is where I went. And it, it helped me. Without a doubt. And you fuck up all the people when you were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I was a sad drunk from what I remember. No, seriously, but you, you, you had a drinking problem. Yeah. But because you think the martial arts had a, 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 a large thing to it did. pull out of it. And, and for, me, for, me, for me, it did. It, it, I integrated it into other systems that were, that were put in place to get me to get what I needed to get to move in the right direction. And, and the place that you go to do your martial arts now, that's in the city, right? 
it's in Manhattan. Yes, they just moved to 30th Street and 8th Avenue. It's, it, it, the covert virus has stopped everything. There's no, nobody's doing anything. That's, uh, right now they're doing everything on video. They're doing everything on the uh, online. Where is the school? I'm sorry? What, what, what's the name of the school? It's, it's, it's the World Sado, S-E-I-D-O, Karate Organization. The teacher's name is Kaicho Tadashi Nakamura. And he is just world renowned. He's He's been, a, he's been a black belt longer than I've been alive. And he is just, and his son is eventually going to take over the system. But the two of them have fused, as I said, a uh, more than just technique. And uh, Doc is part of it, right? Doc goes there too. Doc, Doc is an Doc actor. Is that, one of my actors. I, a lot of people. Academy, right? Yes. A lot of the people that we used in our workshops had, interestingly enough. He's either also an actor and who was also on... Um, what was that show? Uh, Power. Power, yeah. So yeah. Doc, so oh, great. In our, uh, the, the class that we do at the Academy, yeah. the one that you created, the one that you pulled me in, has really good actors in it. Yes, it does. Like I was actually so, you know, I, I felt like, okay, this is cool, man. You know, I oh, can- Absolutely. No, I can uh, when it's done right, acting, like I said earlier, Role play scenario can be campy, silly, hammed up. It could actually be negative training. But when you bring in people that, uh, and it's not really, it's, it can be their training, but they just have that that ability, that innate ability to read a scene, and and they're there, they're focused, and they have a character, and they're willing to play very vulnerable characters. I mean, as you know, we ask the actors to play. Some pretty bizarre characters. And Ill. Most people wouldn't do that. Yeah, mentally ill people. Yeah, it's tragic. Yeah, uh, Rich Pesci, who's also a, a great actor, and and Sacharn, and uh, uh, you had uh, Rem, um, the girl there. She's gone now, but uh, the, the the class has evolved, but it keeps filling in with other great actors. Well, that's and fantastic. I, that's good for me to hear. No, I've, have, kept, I've kept I've kept up with many of the. The people that I was working with at John Jay was Anna Bull and Rebecca Tarosian and uh, oh my these people were Nathan Perdee who's on daytime television Grant Cooper. Uh, yeah, Grant Cooper's uh, a friend of mine from comedy. Right from comedy, phenomenal. Michael Cuevas, Aaron Shields. I mean, we had a we had a doctor, uh, and she was just fantastic. Okay, Ann Stockton. She's a psychiatrist. Okay, and a SAG actor and an equity actor. So, I mean, I appreciate you saying what you said about this program and the, the faculty from John Jay, the late Dr. Ray Pitt and Diana Falkenbach, uh, really, really uh, uh, Mark Fondacaro. There were so many people that have left an impression on me and on that program to really help cops get that people, that mental illness is a family disease and it's very complicated. And you can't rush these jobs. Uh, what I say in my class, the Kasatsu Dojo technique and spirit, I, I kind of, I kind of took a lot of, I took a lot of what we were doing, and I like teaching with alliterations. So I, I look at the letter E, and that stands for ego deflation, that stands for ethics, and it stands for empathy. In my opinion, empathy. To be able to get, to be able to slow down the occasion. Of course, I learned this from Jack, that even if you have the stick, you don't have to use it. 
But the idea is if you can work people through their range of emotions, and you know they're tragic. And the other EDP on the scene is any family member that's watching this. So cops now probably have the hardest job in the any era of policing. Probably, you know, because people out on the street with cameras, they're wearing their own camera, watching yeah. what they're doing. No and doubt. I thought of like even de-escalating situations myself as a cop. Right. Your voice alone. And I wasn't afraid to say, let me see your fucking hands. Now I think a cop might be afraid to say that because his camera's on and he might be chastised later on for why did you curse at the guy? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, when did the police department become a seminary? I mean, yeah. I mean, I... I try not to use vulgarity, okay? I mean, I use vulgarity when I'm in a character, obviously. And I'm, some of the characters that I play are very complicated. I play a suicidal police officer. And it's, it's work because, I mean, I, I make sure that these cops get the impact that they have on another human being who's tragically flawed. He's alcoholic, lost his wife, losing his job, jammed up. And that, 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 scenario, that scenario dates back to 9-11 when we first started doing it. Jack and I put it together and Stu Kirshner put it together and, and Tony Favara. We turned it into a 9-11 scenario that this cop, I had to come up with a character that was so vile that even if he was a member of the service, you wanted to turn your back on him. And I had him alcoholic, three times to rehab, tragic story that he stole from a 9-11 fund. And now I have these ESU cops and they had a visceral reaction. And that's what I wanted. I wanted them to work through this paralyzing emotion where I, I have to hate you and yet I have to help you. And they, they did it. And I, I'm telling you, I'm not, I am not easy on these cops. Well, well, that's uh, what I think that the public doesn't understand is the emotion involved in policing, when, when a cop confronts a dangerous situation, he's scared. He of course you are. Scared. Of course you are. No, I, I, I no, please. I, I, listen. You know, one of the toughest things for me to see when I was when I was an old cop. Now I'm an old retired cop. Was cops losing their humanity? Because, again, I use alliterations. You know, the cynicism. Just you're out there all the time dealing with the most caustic and most complex people, all right? And cynicism and complacency. I mean, we may remember there was a brilliant, a brilliant uh, program done by the FBI, the Justice Department. When I first started teaching cops, it was called the FBI study killed in the line of duty. And it really graphically and clinically examined police officers who were murdered doing their job. And, and again, that's tough to talk about. Talking about dead cops is tough. So I had to really preamble that the right way, that the last thing any cop wants to hear is judgment. I mean, you said this early in the program with this Minneapolis case. Okay. I mean, I don't have the right to make you feel wrong, but yet I have to talk to you about what's what's going on. We have to get to the truth, okay? Yeah, but, uh, James, if I could cut you off. Sure. I, I, you know, I was involved in a homicide course and when they were in the homicide course, the cops that died in the line of duty um, were usually the nicest cops. Yeah, I, I have, I have, I have that written down. That was a printout. They were community cops. They were playing Santa Claus. The guys who were uh, weren't myself in that cop. They weren't on point. Right. They, they were, were disgusted. They were. Distracted. That's the highest rate yeah. of 
of cops who die in the light of duty, especially with car stops, right. is the cop that was casual. So you remember when I taught, they had this system that they wanted me to emphasize about how to stop and what to say when you stop. And I, I played that out. And I, 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 talking about car stops, they're very dangerous, family disputes, very dangerous. So I tried to infuse a little bit of humor. And rather than poke at anybody personally, I kind of created the cop that we all have to work at not being. And I did this, have you ever been pulled over by the police? And all the hands go up. And I did a, I did a state trooper. And I would go around the room asking cops, where did you get pulled over? And I'm hearing all ports of call. And I would actually become the squared away right off of the parade grounds with the Stetson. Oh yeah, that was their, oh, the whole, what, what your presence and words do, how, what you look like and what you sound like affects outcome. That was a, the salient point of my program. The only two things that you, because most cops are control freaks. So I said, now I'm giving you something to control, what you look like and what you sound like, because everything else involves another person and you will lose control. And I would do this, this presentation about, just how strict and serious and put, and it had nothing to do with gender. It had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with background or height or weight. I took all of it. I stripped it of all of the labels and brought it down to where are you? Who are you? And then I did, I flipped it. And I said, have you ever been pulled over by the New York city police department? Okay. <laughs> French fries on his thigh. Exactly. Exactly. Can't just, over. exactly. The guy just fell out of a hamper. You know, he's got, you know, <laughs> Exactly. He's got, you know, powdered donuts. He got lotto shavings on his lap. What hat? No hat. You know, hey, come on, Tommy, back me up. Yeah, hump, you know. And of course, the RMP, one, one headlight works. The other, one, one, one bulb is flashing, you know, the cracked windshield and the, the, the radio doesn't work. And I would deconstruct the cop and say, don't become this guy. And just impatient and angry. Be professional. How you look and how you act has everything to do with the respect. Wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm curious right now. Which guy don't become which guy? Don't become don't become the sloppy cop. Don't become the cop oh, that okay. has mayonnaise and jelly and, and uh, okay. egg foo young and arons con condules hanging off. You, know, you take the tie and you dip it in boiling okay. water. Maybe, you come maybe. up with a cup of soup. I mean, yeah. a version of that in, um, in BMOC where they, they would show cops doing egregious things and say, no move, Sarge. What are you going to do? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you got a problem. Yeah, yes, you got absolutely. a problem, Sarge. What are you going to do with this guy, you know? Guys like making out with a girl on the radio. Yeah, exactly. Sarge. <laughs> you know, we were talking about this a little earlier, how, you know, life, life, art imitates life, okay? And anecdotal. And, and you don't have to look any further than your own life for examples for anything you're looking at. And one of the blocks that I taught when we were doing this intact, this lecture-based training, was how to confront somebody either off-duty or somebody's in civilian clothes. Because you know, I hate I hate the term friendly fire. I mean, it kills me. Accidental discharges, uh, it just it, it sickens me when you know these kids. So I had to come up with with something that really brought home the point about both what you look like and what you sound like, command presence, professional presence in words, and police don't move. And I told a story 
I was a brand new cop. I'm talking, I got, I got no time on the job. And my young partner and myself with housing, orange and blue, meet the Mets radio car. And we're riding around. <laughs> And it's almost end of tour, and we get a call to 70 West 115th Street, 5th to Lennox on the Cross at Martin Luther King houses. And we pull up, female armed with a gun. We get out, swivel holsters, the Smith & Wesson Model 10, and we run into the building. And another car from the PSA shows up, and they run into the building. 70 West 115th Street, 5th to Lennox on the Cross. And you got the picture. Beautiful cloudless sky October, beautiful day, cops running into the building, a crowded lobby, school kids, senior citizens. And we're about to mark the job unfounded. And all of a sudden, a door opens and out steps the woman with the gun. The sergeant, I, I forgot to say, the sergeant showed up. And the sergeant was really squared away. He looked like a, the command presence. And he's looking at me, we're ready to mark the job 90X. The door opens up, out steps the woman. We're all working from behind cover because that's what we're taught. Cover buys time, time buys safety. But the sergeant and his driver were right out in the middle of the lobby. The sergeant drops his cigarette, wheels his body around, takes his weapon out of his holster, levels it at his threat. And the sergeant said, police, don't move. Drop the gun, drop the gun now. She dropped the gun. I dropped my gun. My partner dropped his gun. We were taken captured by the surrender to the sergeant. But that's the point. What's the story? What's the point? Well, yeah. that's what you know. You were trained to say it's on every locker in the city. Police don't move. But I can tell you that in times when I was scared, I substituted. Freeze, motherfucker! You know, it wasn't police don't move. Well, again, another point that I tried to make with that little vignette was training. Now, you got guys on the job who came on the job in the 70s. They weren't taught police don't move, but yet they had to use police. This sergeant didn't come out of my academy class. This sergeant came on the job in 1968. So he had to go somewhere and submit himself to this phrase. And maybe sometimes he did the opposite. But at least in this time, that day, I witnessed him take something that he learned in the police academy and it showed up in his daily life. And we were all, and he turned to me and says, uh, hey, you, that's your collar. And he lit up another cigarette and he was gone. You know? <laughs> you know what's funny is that a lot of people that aren't law enforcement that are paying attention right now, uh, they wouldn't know, but on every single locker, there was a, a sticker that said, police don't move. Big orange sticker, absolutely. And, and that's where your name was on it, or if you wanted to put your shield number on it, that was your locker. It's, there's nothing that's, else. That was on the top of, uh, that was on everybody's locker. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, listen, I, I listen. The, 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 the FBI study killing the line of duty really brought home that perps aren't impressed with our tough guy act, okay? They, Perp, real perps, I'm talking real scary perps. They have a measure of discipline and they are committed to their life of crime. And for me, I know that one trip to Rikers Island or Attica or Greenhaven or Warway, you'll see inmates sharing tradecraft. Yes. They're not talking about their pension. They're not talking about uh, the variable supplement. They're not talking, they're training. And I used to actually be somewhat envious of that and say, 
wouldn't it be great if just for a few minutes we could get this focused on what we do? And getting back to that borough-based training, those years and years and years ago that I would go there, after borough-based training was over, everybody would go to the bar and we'd be dumping down the Amstales and then cops would start talking about police work. And I used to say, where were you two hours ago when this schmo was up there holding us hostage? Oh, I ain't gonna say anything. Cops are afraid to share their knowledge, their experience, their strength. We need cops to, to open up and say, listen, no, this, you is, know, what, this is what I do. Um, and because of the course that you left behind. Yes, sir. You know, they're getting, we're, they're getting that type of training. I, I'm one of the actors in the course right now. And a lot of times, especially the autism one, oh. because there's a lot of, uh, you know, law enforcement officers who have autistic children. Yes, they do. And we do a scenario in the course where um, the person happens to be autistic and they're at a bus stop hmm. and their uh, bus isn't showing up, their driver's not showing up. Hmm. And, you know, the cops are told to respond and they do. And now they have to deal with, you know, somebody who, you know, somebody called 911 for a, a suspicious person, but the person is autistic. Yeah. So in that scene, how many times after when it's done, do you have uh, police officers coming up to the actor who played that and say, uh, wow, man, it, you know, and they're crying. They're crying. They're like, I have an autistic child and I always worry about them and, and stuff like that. So, you know, the course that you put together lives on. And, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I do, you know, what I wanted to say was, you know, the suicide cop, you know, I play that part yes. now and uh, it's an emotional piece. Yeah. And, you oh. know, you, you, uh, you, you left it to me. And just so you know, it's in, in it's in good hands. Never doubt it. You're not a success unless you have a successor. Remember that. There you go. You got some good, good James. You know, one of the things that Mark and I are trying to do through this Police Off the Cuff podcast yeah. is we almost feel in a way that we are teachers, but mm -hmm. we're teaching through the careers of fantastic police officers. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow we have Chief Louis Anamone on again. Uh, Remarkable. Great, great police officer. Remarkable. That left so much behind. Uh, Three, two, CO, holding 11. I that's mean, right, that's right. <laughs> that became the chief. But highlighting the careers of, of great, great guys, you know, yeah. Mike Heinrichs, almost highly decorated detective in the history of the department, Peter Pranzo, lieutenant yeah. of the 3 2. I mean, I could name tons of names. Yeah. Scott Wagner. From PSA ah, PSA five Scott Wagner he was yeah. there when I got there. He helped me out. Great man. Hostage negotiator, by the way. Irma uh, Rivera. Scott Wagner was a hostage negotiator. Yeah. Irma Rivera, Miss Homicide. She's been on our show like four times. What our goal is is to really highlight the great work of police officers yes. in New York City and help as many as we can and through you this are. show. You know? Absolutely. Well, not for nothing. That's why we chased after you, James. You gave us a hard time, man. He was hard to nail down, this guy, you know? I know, but you know what, Bill? You you, you, you were persistent. God bless you, man. I'm, I, you know what? And I'm so happy because... Resilient. I, I, you know, I can't, I can't toot your horn enough. I mean, it just, it's just a remarkable career. Um, a different type of cop, but just 
showing you the the opportunity that the NYPD holds for uh, you know for people on the job. If you have a special talent, there's a place for you. Yes, and you had a special talent, yes. and you found your way through the department, mm -hmm. and um, you know because of that, there's a lot of officers getting trained right now. Uh, that that are going to be able to do their jobs way more better. Yes, and they'll and they'll pass that on. Yeah. And it's not really what you what you tell people; it's what you show people. Yeah. And in doing it, I benefited. I got better doing it. I, I or when we would go around, the cops would be because, to my opinion, what I used to say, and I still say it: all of us are better than any of us. All of us are better than any of us, and. The, the, the magic of that course or courses like this, what Kathleen and I are doing and others, we bring Jack Cambria in, Jack and I did some work in New Jersey and, and plenty of people. I know, I know where people are. And, and my prayer is that at some point we're going to be busy, but the idea is each one teaches one and you pass on this experience. And, and James, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but um... Tell us more about the course, because we're going to wrap up right now. I just want to hear more about the course. Right now, what I'm doing, I'm going back to New York. I'm, uh, I'm putting to, right, what I'm doing now is I'm really looking to do a two-day course, which is a lot of information. And over the years, I really amassed an enormous catalog of material. But I can do a one-day course. But when, you do, when I do the one-day course, I'm really not able to bring in the actor trainers. Okay, um, so what I would, what I would, what I would on my website, I offer a, a three-hour course. I mean, if, you, if you're if your company or you're just looking for the check the box training, and I put in as much information, kind of didactic information into the three-hour course. But that one-day course is is good. But the two-day, Kathleen comes in. We have the actors, scenarios, and. It's not enough that I show you that I know this, which is never the point of the training. My work is to get you to know that you got this and it has to be experiential. It can't be lectured. It can't be done to mute. You have to get up on your feet. The actors, as you know, will challenge you. Kathleen is there to guide you through it with clinical perspectives. So we demystify mental illness. And if I were to write a, a thesis, which I know I won't, it would be the criminalization of the mentally ill because that's what's happened in this country. The police are called out all the time to deal with mental illness. And very often there's a tragedy. So there's a criminalization of mental illness, okay? Uh, and a, a dehumanization or a demonization of the cops. Now I know the CIT program is, is really rolling. And they, the NYPD was out for that CIT program for many, many, many years, the Memphis model. And it's, it's growing, the cops are getting, it's not sensitivity training. It's about taking your time. It's about focusing and listening and engaging and always tactical and always tactful and always technically right. So the course that, that I am offering will capture as much of this as I can and offer it. I'll play, I'll present, I'll show up to anyone. I, you go on the website, you'll see a, an 800 number and, write to me. I'm on, as you know, I guess I'm on LinkedIn. I guess I'm, I guess I'm James Shanahan on LinkedIn. I'm really, Bill, you asked me if I have a Kesatsu Dojo LinkedIn. Maybe I should put that together. But listen, I'm taking baby steps, okay? Um, 
but that's what we're doing. You know. Right, James. That's well, you know what? It, what? The message that you're sending out there is is what we need right now. I mean, we need, obviously, with what's going on right now, to bring it full circle uh, with what happened over there in Minneapolis. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's just like, you know, uh, could there have been a, a, a scenario where it didn't have to go this way? Right. You know, and to avoid those situations. So that being said, uh, is there any story that you want to end with, James? Because we're giving you the opportunity to give you your one. This is your moment. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring a tearjerker to you. Okay. Well, give me it's, one. It's the story that changed my life. Go ahead. Okay. Because I was, I, I saw myself kind of as a ham and egger until this happened. I was in the martial arts at Sato Karate, Kaicho Nakamura, and a man that was senior to me, his name was Pat Brown. He was a captain in the New York City Fire Department. He was a, a Marine in Vietnam in the infantry. And his firehouse was right around the corner from PSA 6. And he and I used to get together and we would talk and we would drink coffee together and he helped me. And this is right after that PBA, losing your PBA, back of the name, the back of the card of the PBA. And I vented to him. And he could have said to me, hey, grow up or shut up, but he listened to me, he took the time. And he asked me some very interesting questions because I was really going on about all I did. You know, I, I had to unload this. I did this and I did that. I was pretty immature and self-centered. And he said to me, okay, I, let me ask you something. Did you give to get? Because if you give to get, that's not service. You're making a deal. I'm glad I heard him say that. And we used to train together. He was a great fighter and helped me a lot. One night we went out to a Japanese restaurant down in the village and we got to talking about cops and firemen and men and what we are. And we bear our soul because we trusted each other. And we were talking and we were getting, we were getting someplace. And I remember him scribbling the Superman sign on a paper tablecloth. And I was going through some stuff in my life. And our teacher always talks about this, this, this term in Japanese called jiga o sotkiro means throw away your ego, get rid of your ego. And I realized that I had a much bigger ego than I have now, okay? It was very selfish. And I said to Pat, talking about ego deflation, I said, Pat, I was dealing with a lot of loss at the time. If you had to lose everything but your health and your freedom, what would that be? And immediately he said, oh, my serenity. And I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ready to hear this. And I challenged him. I said, no, Pat, I'm not, that's, that's, what does that mean? He says, no, serenity. Serenity comes from service. And I got angry. I said, look, I do. He says, service that's done in silence. Because if you talk about what you do, all people are going to talk about is the fact that you talk about what you do. Service, that's, serenity comes from service that's done in silence that involves a sacrifice. He hit me with that that night. I have not been the same since then. And I bring that message to my class. September 11th, that morning, claimed the life of Captain Pat Brown. And I was able to get his last radio transmission and I broadcast it in the class where he's on his way up, knowing the danger he was in, knowing the risk. 
He kept him and his team moving and helping people. The last thing that not only Pat Brown, but many of our first responders were the last face that a lot of good people saw before they perished. And on that radio transmission, you hear him thank his dispatcher. So I play that to really bring it home that this is what we do. We are first responders, we are protectors. People have to feel safe when they see you. People don't have to like you, they have to trust you. And we live in, a, in an age now where everybody is all about their identity and all of this. I don't know where to go with that. I'm really not interested in that. People have to trust that when you show up, the moment you show up, everything is gonna get better. They might not be fixed, but you're going to make every effort. So I tell cops, you're on an aided scene. Don't just stand around. Get down on your knee. Get on the radio. People are watching you. You want to be the exception to their stereotype. And that's what I, I I'm glad you let me tell that story because that's, to me, that's a Pat Brown story. I, I, I really miss him. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And he was an authentic trainer too. He was, he was some man. So no, you know why I see that because I can't stop listening to you. <laughs> is, there, is, is there any other story that you want to tell? I mean, who gives a shit? Fuck it. All right, all right, all right, hang on. So my 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 sister, we were we were out in Bay Ridge at my mother's house. Is I had a few months on the job, and uh, yeah, I was all full of piss and vinegar. I was all bricked up. I I, I really thought I was who I was anyway. And my sister just had her first daughter, who's like. 37 years old now, but it's another story. And who has two children of her own. And she had this little infant with her. We went out to the store to pick up some groceries for my mother. We were out in Bay Ridge on 95th Street and 3rd Avenue in this big wraparound driveway. And every night that I used to come home, I'd have a story. It was, it was, it was thrilling for me to work where I worked and do what I do, because it was, it, was, it was the greatest show on earth. I mean, this was, you're there, you're in it. Yeah. And I, we, we go into the supermarket, we're shopping, take care of my mother. And my sister says, hey, look, check him out. Check him out, got an EDP. I mean, she's picking up all the lingo, you know? <laughs> and uh, here's this guy, white guy, six feet, thin, trim looking guy. He's got a long black raincoat on and he's got red hair and it's kind of puffy and he's dragging this black garbage bag around with him. And I said, That's, ignore him. And he's walking around shuffling and he's making his rounds. And the next time I saw him, the bag is pretty full. Now I, I kind of figured out what's going on here, but I'm like, look, let's, let's go. We come out of the supermarket. We're putting our groceries in the trunk of the car and out comes my man with this bag on his back and he's running, the manager comes out and says, stop that man, he just robbed our store. Hearing this, I go after the guy. I told my sister, stay here, don't say anything, don't do anything. I go after him and I drop him, one, two, three, I make sukiyaki out of him. And again, I open up the bag and it's steaks and pork chops and canned food. I said, larceny. Nonsense. I said, listen, my man, you're going back into that store with me. You're going to face the man. I got nothing to do with you, but let me tell you something. I want both hands on this bag. You drop that bag. I promise you, you're going to be on the ground before the bag hits the ground. You got me. Oh, I'm a junkie. And I said, dude, let's go. We bring him into the store. 
They dump out the bag. The manager grabs him. He goes off to the back. And I said, okay, everything all right? You got your property back? He says, yeah, well, we're waiting for the police. You're waiting for the, yeah, we just called the police. I said, you just called the police? Yeah. What did you tell the police? Well, we told the police that we were being robbed. You were being robbed. And I could feel the radio cars pulling up to the supermarket on 95th Street and 4th Avenue, quiet little Bay Ridge neighborhood. And next thing I hear is, police, don't move. And I put my hands up. I said, I'm a cop. I'm on the job. They said, where is your weapon? I told them, it's on my ankle. Where's your shield? In my non-shooting side of my left hand. Take out your shield and ID card. I take it out. Turn around slowly. I turn around and there's six cops. All of them are behind a point of cover. And they got me dead, dead. I said, I'm a cop. Your perp is in the back. And I realized I had at that time kind of reddish, fluffy hair. No, no uh, uh, coat. But I said, I became their perp. Somehow I was mistaken as that perp. And again, it was their tactics and my ability to surrender to their tactics that saved my life. My sister now is outside of the store and there's 12 deep on the sidewalk. Now this is an exciting moment in Bay Ridge. It's like dog day afternoon. And two young girls walk in front of my sister and one of them looks into the store and says, but dad, I went to school with him. That's Jimmy Shanahan sticking up supermarkets. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> That's the story. Great story, James. Oh, man. Well, you know what? Nobody would even probably pick you out for a perp now. Yeah. No. no my perp, yeah, no. I'm, Those, I'm, the perp days are over. If you come, James, if you come to New York, we'd love to have you come into the studio. Yeah, you got to come down and check it out. Yeah. Love to. We got a whole thing there. We got a. We got a. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm coming up to New York. Kathleen and I are coming up to New York. We have summer plans. Uh, I live in Cary, not Cambodia. Okay, so it's it's it's. No, you're in a good spot right now, man. Especially with what's going on here in New York and stuff. You guys are opening up. Are you by Myrtle Beach? That's 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 on the coast. We're inland. I, I don't have any I don't have any hurricanes in me. They're already partying there like it's a fucking nineteen fucking nineteen ninety-nine. Oh yeah. No, that's no, coming together in time. You know, try to be patient. No, but... Carrie is like the Pearl River of North Carolina. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, so we're right at... Raleigh. R Raleigh is the next town over. So I the, for me. Raleigh is like Manhattan and Carrie is like Brooklyn kind of thing. I, everything that I miss and like and need is is there. So I'm not I'm not in the hills somewhere. Uh huh. So what do you do? You get up in the morning. What do you do? Well, these days not much because it's starting to come back. But uh, I like to swim. Kathleen loves to swim. I take these water aerobics classes with the 75-year-olds and she swims her laps and we shop and we- Where do you do this? We have right, not even two miles from here, an Olympic swimming pool into a 50-meter pool. It's okay. heaven. It's yeah. the cathedral. So my job is to get Kathleen in that water. And now she's got me in the academy. academy pool. Yeah, right. <laughs> Remember we had to swim one lap to get out of the academy. That's all they want. How about, how about the people that couldn't swim? Yeah, yeah. The guy would be on the side 
was hilarious. Across the water. Hilarious. Oh, old Navy SEALs, those NYPD recruits. <laughs> no, that's no, no, sorry. Yeah. The what are you wearing? A speedo over there? Oh, yeah, I'm rocking a speedo like hell. Yeah, I got my blue. And all those old ladies going crazy over you? Wild, man. Wild. All right. So, so uh, weather's good. I miss you guys. I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to come out here. I'm glad we did this. Yeah. It was fun, man. It was great. I could listen to you all day. <laughs> I really could. Could you do uh, me a favor and give my regards to all of the folks out there at the, I used to call the police academy the Vatican, you know, so uh, give my regards. I wish you the, all the best with your course, and I hope that you get a lot of business and that you're all over the country. And uh, once we're back in studio and you're in New York, I, we'd love to have you back on. Outstanding. That's beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate you're, it. Uh, you're a guest here whenever you want to come on. Okay. Fantastic. Bill, any parting words? Parting words. Uh, tomorrow, episode 67 comes out, part two of Chief Lewis Anamone. It's a fascinating um, look at the chief, who's now, I think, 75 years old. was mm -hmm. probably one of the most innovative bosses ever on the New York City Police Department. Mark and I are hoping to go back into the studio next week with a really exciting guest. I'm not gonna tell you who it is until it's confirmed. And for you people out there that haven't caught police off the cuff fever, we have uh, 73 episodes done, not counting these police off the cuff after hours that we do via Zoom and on Facebook Live. So we appreciate you watching. We're growing bigger and bigger. And we're also on a website called Inside Blue 360 that's backed by the Sergeant's Benevolent Association. Oh wow, good feel. Congratulations. Yeah. All right. So uh, thank you, James. The pleasure was mine. I love you, buddy. Thank you thank for hooking me up. Thanks, Jim. I'm forever indebted to you. I wish you nothing but the best of luck. You're, you're, you're brilliant and you're talented and uh, you're one of the best things to ever come out of the police department. All right. So uh, on behalf of uh, Police Off the Cuff, thank you. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. The best. End the tour. <laughs> EOT. EOT, as they say. I'm going to shut us off because I don't want people hearing what we're talking about.